How do you know when a closer, especially your closer, is about to blow up? I'll ask Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 31st. It's show number 24 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing dark clouds over some closers, bullpen trends, some facts and flukes, his boons and banes, and a whole lot more. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Odebel Herrera, Charlie Blackman, Travis Shaw, and other NL player news. And Jock Thompson will have news from the American League, including the expanding Houston injured list, a return from the injured list in Seattle, and other American League reports. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about dump trading. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Toronto right-handed starter Nate Pearson. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at key starter matchups this weekend, including the marquee matchup with Washington right-hander Max Scherzer in Cincinnati to face rising star right-hander Luis Castillo on Sunday. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about applying the Lima plan during the season. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Dallas Coikel Watch is heating up. we got to talk some baseball. Well, Dallas Koichel has been on the sidelines all season, but he certainly appears to be getting ready to sign a contract and get back onto a major league mound. Reports say he's been throwing a simulated game every five days, about 100 pitches apiece, and scouts have been in attendance. His agent Scott Boris recently told John Paul Morosi of MLB.com that Koichel will only need a week to get ready to pitch once he signs. Now the key date in Koichel's potential signing, as well as Craig Kimbrell's, comes on Monday with the annual amateur entry draft. After that, teams don't have to give up a draft pick to sign Koichel because he rejected a qualifying offer. A bunch of teams are interested in Koichel, including the Yankees, the Rays and the Twins in the American League, and the Braves, Cardinals and Brewers in the National. What do they all have in common? They all have playoff aspirations and they all have question marks in their rotations. Another factor has added to the likelihood of a quick signing. Reports say Koichel has backed off his insistence on a long-term deal and that he'll even consider a contract just for the rest of this year. It's still going to cost a team around $18 million for those 20 or so starts, but a short-term rental makes him a lot more interesting to teams like Milwaukee, Minnesota and Tampa who do have ongoing financial restraints. And don't you wish you'd save more fab money? I know I do. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. 
It's been a while. I think you were on a year or two ago and uh, haven't had you back since, but I certainly have seen and talked to you in various locations, so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, how are your teams doing? Well, some are doing better than others, that's for sure. I'm a little bit behind you in the TGFBI. I'm 58th overall in that. I think you're like, like around 50 or something, I think. Um, I got Shelly the Shark for straight, though. She's first overall in the in the entire thing, and she's in my league, so I don't think I'm going to win with her in my league. But uh, but I, I'm pretty happy with 58. I'm second in the XFL. I think I have a shot in that one. That would be that would really be something if I could pull that off. I don't even want to talk about my tout AL team. It's so horrible. Don't even ask. Um, my labor team's not doing so great either. So. Mixed bag, mixed bag for sure. I wouldn't mind talking about the Tout AL team, but uh, because I'm doing I'm doing well this year for a change. Uh, you talk, you mentioned the XFL. Some people might not be familiar with what the XFL is. It's a very deep, very strategic uh, keeper league, is it not? Yeah, it's a dynasty league. Um, you only get 15 keepers a year, but you know they can be minor leaguers or whatever. People have drafted high schoolers at times or people who are three or four years from coming over from Japan and so yeah it includes uh you have to have a know a lot about a lot of different players and sort of figure out how to how to bring them all together to uh, maximize for a year or two and then after that it's back to rebuilding it's a tough tough league for sure and if I also recall correctly when you go into your draft there's no computers, there's no notes. You get one sheet of paper, and, and you have to do the rest of it out of your head? Yep. We get handed out a list of players. and The draft is – actually, we do an auction in uh, at the Arizona Fall League. So we get a piece of paper that we're handed at that that has a list of players. You can only pick players that are on the list, which are essentially players who were active the year before. Um, to fill out your active roster, and then in March we we have a uh, we have a supplemental draft that is a snake draft, and that's really where you get your minor leaguers and other players. So there's really two phases to it. Um, but yeah, when we're at the, at the Arizona Fall League, you're doing everything from memory or just you know making it up, really. Um, you mentioned the great fantasy baseball invitational and that you're in the same league as the overall leader. I'm in the same league as the overall third place guy. And uh, so I don't think I'm going to be making any great progress, but I have to tell you, Doug, when I got into the league, I just wanted to finish kind of in the top third of the overall and maybe, you know, second or third in my league. And uh, I didn't have any expectations of winning the whole thing. I, I believe in contests like this, that there's a huge element of luck when you've got 315 different teams competing in multiple leagues and that kind of thing. I don't know that it's a great test of acumen. What do you think? Well, I think we'll learn that over time. Um, one of the things, of course, that they did this year, which I really applaud, but at the same time is really difficult, is um, they made a league of the teams that won last year. So it's going to be very difficult, you know, when you're in a league of winners like that to to win again but i think if you look at you know we've only this is only the second year of it but if you look over time maybe 10 years out you'll see that there's probably some cream to it and some crap too i mean you know some people are going to be good at it and some aren't and a lot of it's format driven so if you're good at this format you might be bad at others and vice versa but um but it's interesting for sure i i finished right around the middle of the pack last year i'm doing better this year 
Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there is some element of luck for sure because injuries uh, play into it quite a bit. And a couple of baseball HQers in the top sort of 50 or so. I'm 50th right on the nose. You're right behind me. You said uh, Ryan Bloomfield's, I think, 25th or so. Brad Coleman is 40th uh, the last time I checked. And uh, I think there's a couple of others, but I'm not sure. Anyhow, it's a lot of fun, and it's a, it's an interesting league. I just wonder, uh, the, the, the NFBC runs the league, and I know the approach there is to try to win the whole thing because that's where the big money is. You can do well financially winning your league, but the big money's in winning overall and I wonder if that's coloring how people go into it and I've actually heard people say if you win your league but don't win the overall you didn't accomplish anything and I'm not sure about that either yeah I mean with a redraft league there's so much luck involved I mean there's but there's been players who are consistently at or near the top so they're doing something right um beyond just luck so yes uh, uh I don't, I don't know in the NFBC whether they have that same kind of experience where it's the same guys year in and year out are always doing well, but I, I suspect there are guys who are always doing well, but uh, I don't expect that there's too many repeats uh, overall. Uh, Doug, you're the bullpen buyer's guide columnist at BaseballHQ.com. How long have you been doing that column? This is my 21st year doing that column. 21 years. Holy cow. So... Uh, that's 1997. So who who are the big relievers? Then was Rivera still around? Right. It was. It isn't. It isn't. Uh, but it isn't 97. It's uh, it's 99. So I saw. I, my first year was 99, and then 21 years is 19. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I don't remember. I think I've been at the site around the same length of time, and I don't remember anything of it. It's kind of just all blurry in, into the past. Uh, but how did you get started covering bullpens? Was it was it bullpens right from the jump? It was, um, oddly. I Actually, I became email friends with Rob Nyer and John Hunt back then, and they both encouraged me to talk to Ron Chandler, about who you know at the time was hiring. And so when I talked to Ron, he said, well, send me a writing sample. Um, I'm like, geez, I don't have a writing sample. But I wrote him an article about closers, and he's, he, he liked it, and I've been doing bullpens ever since. So really, it was because of my poor choice of writing sample that I've been stuck doing bullpens for 20, 21 years. But it does play an outsized role, the, the whole idea of bullpens and bullpen management in fantasy because of the importance of saves, and now some leagues are adding in saves plus holds, plus the benefit that you get uh, from relievers in the decimal categories. Um, how do you, when you're looking at what you're trying to convey to the readers, what, is the, what are the key ideas that you're trying to get across? I think the thing that I try to get across is that, one, things change really, really quickly with relievers because they just don't have that many innings. So, you know, the amplitude of, of one bad outing really matters, you know. Um, and so then what you really are trying to do is figure out which relievers are the best skill set um, and try to go after those guys. Obviously, they do better if they have a better skill set. But just understand that things can change really quickly. And there's a bit of frustration from the point of view of, of chasing after relievers using their skills because, and I think this is changing, and I'm curious if you think so too, but for the longest time, it wasn't always the most skilled guy in the bullpen who got the best role, who got the most saves. And because we were so interested in saves, that's where the value is, that's where the dollars are. It was sometimes frustrating to have the three best relievers in, in the league and none of them closing games. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that people are very impatient, so they think to themselves, i got to have whoever the closer is. And, you know, there's a long history of Rocky Biddles and Ryan Colmeyers and, 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 you know, guys who got saves for some period of time who, who really did not have great skill sets. Um, and so players, you know, that's like a moth to the flame for, for fantasy owners. But at the same time, you realize that those guys are going to lose their role because of their poor skill set eventually, and you're really looking for what's a really good skill set behind a guy like that that I can get cheaply. Those guys often pay out far more than the guy who starts the year in the role. There was a guy, I can't remember who it was, who was closing games, I think, in Colorado and had a six-something ERA. Does that ring any bells? Um, it does. I can't even remember who, who it is, but yeah, I mean, that, that happens, but, but it doesn't happen repeatedly. So, you know, I can't remember who it is, but let's say that guy pitches for two, three months and he's getting saves. Eventually the team's got to replace him because otherwise the team, you know, the team's really, it's, it's, it's really two things. One, you're losing games, but not only are you losing games, you're losing games where you were leading late. And that is, that is just a killer morale-wise. And, you know, teams don't tolerate that for very long. So they're, they're quick to, to move on when somebody doesn't have a great skill set, generally. And one of the latest things that's going on now, I noticed in Boston that uh, I drafted Matt Barnes in the uh, in a couple of leagues, and based on skills and the and the fact that nobody else was there, and the team seems to be have, to have made a very determined decision that yes, we know Matt Barnes has the best skills in this bunch, but we don't care. He's still not going to close games. We're going to use him in the highest leverage situations, maybe in the end of the seventh, partway through the eighth, and uh, more and more teams seem to be. Uh, adopting that kind of approach which is something that people who are into statistics and people like us have long said this is what they should be doing you know if you've got the seven eight nine guys doing the ninth and the four five six in the in the eighth use your best pitcher to get four five six and now that they do it we all get kind of irked because we don't know who to grab for for because it's only the save that counts yeah, it's actually a double whammy, too. A guy like Matt Barnes is always facing the hardest hitters on the other team. It, it actually hurts Matt Barnes himself, you know, because he's always facing, you know, the toughest guys. But, you know, if you're a team, that's that's what you want to do. You want to have your, your best matchup possible to win a game. And so, you know, whether a person gets a save or not is inconsequential to, to teams. It's more about how do I, how do I give myself the best chance to win and Lots and lots of teams are doing that now. Um, so, so it may be that your best skill set is not the guy who's going to get saves um, to a greater degree than it used to be. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, you can, you can look at a, any given bullpen and kind of gauge what's going on just by looking at the role, the usage, and, and, and what happens over, over some weeks. And, but, but again, it's fluid and it changes all the time. So you just have to, you know, it's a lot to keep uh, track of, honestly. One of the things that you use in your column a lot is the leverage index that uh, is uh, a measure of what kind of situation the, the uh, pitcher was going into. Uh, how does that work? I don't, you don't need to give me the whole math situation, but do you know, uh, can you explain how leverage index is calculated uh, in a broad sense? Yeah, it was invented by Tom Tango, um, but the whole point of it is, is, is this pitcher coming into a game where the difference between winning and losing is at its highest point? And, and if it is, then, it, then it's a very high leverage 
um, situation and you have a higher number assigned to it. And what you do is you aggregate in, in these things against an index of one, where one is just an average situation from a leverage standpoint. So what you can do is you can say, okay, then a guy has 10 outings with various leverage, um, you know, situations. You know, is the team using him when the game is most on the line? Or, you know, if you have a low number, is the team using him, but the game's completely out of hand one way or the other, and we're just trying to finish innings off. And you learn very quickly by looking at this number um, what the team thinks of the player, what kind of role are they giving them, and, 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 you know, it really gives you some insight, um, not just into what this person's skill set is, but what the team wants to do with that skill set. So it, it's a very powerful um, tool when you're trying to decide which relievers to select and which ones to not select. So it sounds like one of the things we should be looking at is the changes in leverage index over one period to the next. If, if a guy's leverage index looks like it's increasing, the chances are the team is looking upon him more favorably in the reverse. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. So you take what they've done year to date and you look at that versus what they've done over the last month. Anything shorter than a month, you know, you're talking about tiny numbers of innings and tiny numbers of outings, so that might just be aberrational. But if you have a month out and it's going up, chances are that team looks at this player as somebody who's helping them more than some other player, and they might have been switching roles. And you, you often see that in tandem where one's going up and the other one's going down. And so you say, okay, this guy used to have the role. He's lost it to this other guy. So you can see that in real time just by following the leverage index. And I should say that if you do look at le the leverage index of how where the players are coming into games, a lot of times guys who are getting saves are not necessarily getting the highest leverage opportunities, as we said earlier. Because if you come into a game and the uh, it's the bottom of the ninth and you've got a three-run lead and you're facing 7-8-9 on the other team, the game is not nearly as in doubt as it would be if you came in two innings earlier, but the bases were loaded, there was nobody out, and you had 3-4-5 to look at. And that seems to be a more important indication of which guy the team trusts. But again, which guy the team trusts the most doesn't necessarily mean the guy that is going to get the saves the most. And I'm wondering... Doug, when you look at it, do you see that the the general trend is away from this uh, using your best guy as a closer, even if it is just a three-run lead, towards we're going to use our best guy in highest leverage situations, period. Uh, I mentioned Boston. Um, Rocco Baldelli in Minnesota seems to be adopting this model. Taylor Rogers is clearly a better pitcher than Parker, but not getting as many safe situations. Do you see this as being a trend, or, or are the old style, he's my closer and I'm sticking with him guys, going to hang around a while? I would say that it is a trend. I could name I could name probably half the teams in the league that look at it just as you just described it. However, you have to remember that not every team has five great relievers that they can draw from for various situations. I mean, if a team has let's take Minnesota. You mentioned Minnesota Taylor Rogers. Taylor Rogers is probably probably their best reliever right now. And he also happens to be left-handed. And so Baldelli has to be really careful about when he uses Rodgers and how he uses him. But he's always trying to get that guy into games, you know, when the game is on the line and I have to get key lefties at the same time. 
And so, so that's so you'll see Rogers will have a higher um, leverage index than than most closers. Um, but it, but at the same time, closing games is part of what that looks like too, because a lot of times you're ahead by one run, and here comes their their best hitters, and they happen to be left-handed. You got to get those guys out. So, you know, saves can come into it. Um, Oftentimes, games are one-run games late, just as easily as they could be six-run games late, probably more easily. So, so you know, there's a mixed bag there a little bit between saves and, and rolls. Um, but, but, but it's certainly you, – you see that when you see a team that has multiple guys who have saves and you see, you know, leverage index spread out as opposed to concentrated in one guy. So those are, those are things to look for. A lot of it's just a mix of what relievers they have, though. If, if a team only has one good reliever, that guy's getting used. He's just going to have to be, you know. And if you have five, then you have this luxury where you're just sort of giving guys rest and doing different things. And, and, and you, you just have to be aware of which is which. I think one of the takeaways here then is uh, don't confuse saves with talent, and uh, uh, because the it is they are sometimes high leverage saves and sometimes they're not so high leverage saves and that's the that's the key thing. Uh, you tweeted this week, Doug, on a similar sort of vein uh, that the Orioles and I'm quoting here: the Orioles and Royals don't have a closer, and why should they? Well, I get that they don't, but what do you mean by why should they? Well, because they don't have – neither team really has a lot of excellent relievers, and they don't have a lot of situations with late leads. So those relievers that they do have have to preserve what lead or stay close in games to the best that they can. So they almost have to use their relievers in a mix-and-match format where they're just really trying to preserve or stay close in games – and, and, and let the ninth inning go how it goes. Now, obviously, Baltimore hasn't been doing it that way, but it's been kind of disastrous, too. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't really know, know how to tell those teams how to, how to manage a bullpen when they really don't have a lot of great options. But when you're losing all the time and you don't have a lot of great options, you just have to use the options you can really almost as soon as you can use them, fifth inning if necessary, just to stay in the game. And, and, and so that's really what I mean by that there. You know, you really almost can't even manage a bullpen that, that doesn't have great options in it. So that, that's a problem. I saw somewhere that a player I picked up in tout, uh, Sean Armstrong, started the season in Seattle, got cut, uh, moved along, and ended up in Baltimore, and they just announced that he's the closer there. Is that an example of what you're talking about? Well, Armstrong's interesting. People in the winter, and I'm sure you were too, um, were on him as a guy who could potentially take over saves for uh, Seattle because Seattle really, you know, Hunter Hunter Strickland is, you know, when you hear Hunter Strickland, you think, who else do they have? Um, so Armstrong was an interesting guy. He had a pretty good end of last season. Um, and, and then he, he gets, you know, I don't know how he got, he lost his way in, in Seattle. Cause I look at that bullpen and I don't think there's anything super great there, but he finds his way to Baltimore and, um, Givens, you know, starts coughing up, um, games that they really can't afford to lose. Um, and they, and they suddenly put Armstrong in there. But I, I tend to think that Baltimore is doing these roles in a, in a strict way for reasons I don't understand because I would want Armstrong to be a guy that I was using to get guys out wherever I could get them out if I could. 
the knock on him, a lot of home runs, a lot of walks. So it's a, it's kind of one of those situations where if you're me and I needed saves to try to, to try to move up in the category, I feel like I'm holding on to a, one of those bowling ball type things with a fuse sticking out of it and just waiting to pick up a few saves before the, before it blows up in my face. So uh, they're, they're the, one of the contradictions in in playing fantasy baseball is trying to get saves from guys like Sean Armstrong unless he's turned it around in some way they're very small samples as you said and maybe the uh, strikeouts will bump up and the walks will bump down but sometimes we chase saves to our detriment yeah I think that's true what I try to do honestly Armstrong's a good example of this but I've tried to do this with guys like that at times I mean I don't see any reason why you wouldn't wouldn't want to speculate the worst they're going to do is hurt you with a couple of bad innings. The best they can do is go out and get a couple of saves, and you can actually trade them to somebody else or, or use them. You know, and, and, and you're always worried that they're going to revert or, or have some, you know, some rough patch. I, I, I generally advocate trading guys like that. You know, hopefully get a few saves, then trade them while they're, while they're at their highest, you know, where they actually have some value and, and try to get something you know, better. But, yeah, I mean, that's. Anybody, anybody in Baltimore right now? They're giving up home runs. I don't know what's going on with the with with, that, with baseball, but but home runs are at their highest peak, and Baltimore seems to be a place where where everybody's giving up home runs. So it's a tough situation for sure. Sean Armstrong's ERA two forty five, his WHIPs are on one eighteen, which is playable. Uh, but when you look at those skills, boy, it looks a little bit scary. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, Doug, you announced on Twitter some of your recent fab efforts. Uh, you picked up Keston Hyura in one league for more than $500 out of your 1000 uh, That was in the Fantasy Baseball Invitational. Why the monster bid on uh, Keston Hyura? Um, well, I'm not. A, first of all, I'm not an expert at NFBC, but I, and I definitely... Um, Overbid, maybe, because I think that's the highest bid that anybody put on any player in in the, in the in any of the leagues so far. But my thinking is that I needed to get a player who was going to make a difference for one of my teams, and I think there's probably a tiny handful of players like that available throughout the year. And the earlier in the year I can get a guy who I think will make a difference, I thought that that would be the biggest impact. I needed a middle infielder um, for depth purposes. And so I looked at, I actually looked at Austin Riley as a guy I might get. He's obviously not a middle infielder, but he has um, corner and outfield. Uh, and, and then I also looked at Hyura, and I thought between the two of them, I trust Hyura to, to be a better hitter than, than Riley. So I, uh, so I, I made the splurge and I got him. And immediately after that, D. Gordon got hurt, so I plugged higher in, and I've been pretty happy with it. So, yeah, I, 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 I did not, I was not shy with my fab money in that league. I don't know how else I would use it. And that's always a question that you can ha- have endless debates. It starts to be like the numbers of angels on the head of a pin kind of argument because there's no right answer. If you need a guy and you spend a certain amount of money, hey, I don't know what the second place bid on Hyura was in your league. It was probably considerably less. But what the heck, it's not like you can take the, the remaining fab at the end of the year and buy yourself a steak dinner. Yeah, and I still have – I mean, I, I, I actually – spent most of it so if i need money later i might be in trouble but i really feel like i'm 
I'm I'm okay. I mean, I don't think it's going to – it's not the type of thing where I think, gosh, I, I really regret this. I mean, I guess Hyura could get hurt, and I could I could be in trouble, but I, I just don't think that's going to be the case. I spent $500, I think, in the tout uh, out of my 1000 to get Willie Calhoun, and he immediately got hurt. So anything's possible for sure. You also, speaking of tout, uh, grabbed Luis Sessa for $46 bid out of 1000 What were you seeing with Luis Sessa that got your interest? Well, I saw a living, breathing pitcher, and, and maybe even a starter. And uh, in that league, I need innings desperately. Probably I need innings more than I need anything else. And um, so, yeah, that, that, that really is the total sum of my analysis. This is a guy who is pitching in real games right now. So here we go. I'm getting him. Are you worried about making the 1,000-inning minimum? I am more and more worried about it. I'm behind... Um, I need to get some starters. I'm finding it difficult to get starters. I don't. Uh, I don't really know how I'm gonna how I'm gonna manage that. I keep adding, uh, you know, the Eric Swanson type guys who get blown up and then get sent back to the minors. Uh, I need a guy who can stick around. In National League uh, labor, you play the National League only. In labor, you play the National League only for, uh, you got uh, Cole Irvin for $8. Uh, what was the lowdown on that decision? Well, it was the same kind of decision-making. It just turned out to be more of the Eric Swanson type where, um, you know, he was a living, breathing pitcher. He went into a game, and I think he got destroyed uh, in game and got sent down pretty much immediately after that. So my goal is to try and at this point try and find pitchers who will who will stick around um it's a difficult year for um for cheap pitching um cheap starters anyway and i think it's um it's particularly difficult when you're you're casting around the bottom of the barrel trying to add two two starters um that'll that that won't murder you and will pitch it's kind of interesting, isn't it, Doug, that uh, the major league teams keep adding more and more pitchers and we have harder and harder times trying to figure out where we're going to get hitters from. But it's not like the all these extra pitchers that are finding their way onto 25-man rosters are actually making anybody that much stronger from a fantasy perspective because so many of them are borderline guys and or borderline guys who only throw you know an inning and a third a week. Right. I mean, it used to be innings were not spread out so much among so many. I mean, if you take the number of innings in a season, it's the same. If you take the number of pitchers that are pitching in those innings, it has changed exponentially so that you get fewer and fewer innings from a pitcher. And so you have to figure out a way to um, either get starters who are going to pitch sufficient numbers of innings or um find some way to get reliable innings out of out of these bottom um, pitchers. And that, that really seems to be more of a luck-driven thing, the second one. Um, I have not figured out how to do that yet. And it's not like they're, they jump out at you on a skills basis either. When you're looking at those kind of second-tier middle relief type guys, they, they all seem to be literally interchangeable. There's nothing much to choose one from the next because fantasy owners are getting really good at spotting the skilled guys and pulling them out of the pool before uh, usually before somebody else needs them doug do, do you advocate or have you thought about maybe what leagues fantasy leagues need to do to start addressing the roster balance 
because of the change in how many pitchers there are versus how many hitters and how few pitchers there are who are getting innings, that there are roster possibilities, there are minimum inning requirement possibilities. Should leagues be thinking about changing the rules to, re- to reflect what's gone on in the, in the environment? Um, maybe. Um, I think it really depends on what type of league you're in and how important those things are in those types of leagues. Certainly in a league like the Tout AL that we're in, um, the league, the innings minimum is very difficult to hit if you don't spend money on pitching um, in the in the auction itself. Um, you just have to do it if you want to have enough innings at the end of the year. And it's it's strange because innings are not really a category, but in a sense you don't get any categories unless you get a sufficient number of innings, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. So I think that you either have to shift money to pitching in the auction to cover for that, or you know if you change the rules, then, then you wouldn't have to do that. But, but the, you know, rules changes are, you know, you're creating different kinds of winners and losers every time you, you change rules, so... I'm not really the rules person, but I do see that as, as one possible way to create different winners and losers. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Doug Dennis, bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, once upon a time at First Pitch Arizona, I moderated a panel called Facts and Flukes. You were a panelist uh, with Joe Sheehan and a couple of other guys. It was always a lot of fun. And I'm curious what you make of a few hot or cold players this season. And I'm really curious what you think. Uh, you live in Cincinnati. What the heck's going on with Joey Votto? Ah, uh, Joey Votto. I mean, I love Joey Votto. There were a lot of people over the winter who said, you know, Joey's just not going to be Joey anymore. I mean, he's an all-time great. Certainly those days seem to be past. Um, he hasn't had his any power at all for too long a stretch now, last year and, and two months of this year. Um, you know, I, I really think that people who were expecting Joey Votto to continue at the pace he'd always been are, are disappointed, obviously. It's probably more fact than fluke at this point. I still think he can get his on-base and batting average up from where they are today, um, but I don't think you're going to see power come back, and I think that, um, I think that next year you'll see his price you know, probably less than half of what people paid at the beginning of this year. Uh, that 36 home run year in 2017 looks like uh, very distant in the rearview mirror at this point. Uh, how big a believer are you in Austin Meadows having a fantastic year in Tampa so far? Oh, big believer. I think he's fully legit. Um, I wished I'd seen it coming sooner. I would have. I would have pounced on him had I seen it coming sooner. Other people saw it coming. Um, and, and, and took the plunge, and they're all being rewarded. I don't see, I don't see him slowing down at all. Um, I, I, he's somebody that I had when he was in the minors in my dynasty leagues, and I ended up trading him, and boy, I, I sort of regret it now. Bryce Harper, the last time I checked at BaseballHQ.com, has a 5x5 five five value of just $11. He's not playing well at all. He's been booed at Washington's uh, baseball stadium. Is he a fact or a fluke at 11 bucks? Something in between. I mean, he's always been streaky and had his ups and downs. And, man, when he has his ups and he's on a hot streak, he's he's as good as anybody, including, you know, trout-type people. But, um, you know, I feel like ups are coming soon enough for him, and he'll end up uh, probably at roughly the value that he always ends up at, which seems disappointing but still is a pretty good number. Um, 
But right now, geez, the struggles are massive. He's striking out way too much. But but at the by by year's end, I still think he's going to get it sorted out and turned around. I'm curious about a couple of pitchers, not relief pitchers, but uh, Brandon Woodruff in Milwaukee at $19 is a 5 by 5 player by Baseball HQ Value. He's got a 3.22 ERA, a 109 whip, and he's got seven wins. Do you like Brandon Woodruff as a factor or a fluke? Oh, I like him. I um, I liked him in the off season. I got him in uh, the TGFBI because I knew I could get him late, and I thought he would produce. And he's probably outproducing what I thought he would. But he's, you know, and will he sustain 3.22 and 109? And you know, his wins pace no. But but will he still be very valuable for the rest of the year? Absolutely. I think he could maintain that wins pace, good bullpen and a good team. They score a lot of runs. Matt Boyd in Detroit has been something of a miracle uh, given the poor performance of the Tigers so far this year. He's a 2.85 ERA. His whip is barely over one at this as we speak. Uh, is Matt Boyd finally a, a factor or still a fluke? Oh, I think he's good too. He's a, he's a player that um, actually I was talking with um, I was talking with Emily Walden who is a you know, spends a lot of time at the athletic looking at the Tigers and scouting. Uh, I talked to her the season before in the off season about Matt Boyd and whether he was going to be a good pitcher. And, and, you know, his numbers, there were seeds there to indicate that he could do the sorts of things he did last year. And he's been doing even better this year. So yeah, I'm a believer. I think, uh, do I think his ERA will be at the end of the year under three? No. Do I think it'll be under three and a half? Definitely. Um, I think he's going to be a big part of the Tigers' future. Absolutely. Chris Archer's minus $15 in value. He's uh, got an ERA approaching six, a whip over 150. Uh, is the bloom finally off here? Is Chris Archer the real thing, that we, what we're seeing now? Well, I don't think he's this bad, but boy, he's been, you know, he's been uh, he's been underperforming his, his um, peripherals for years now. Um, and I don't see that ending. I mean, I don't think he's anywhere near as good a pitcher as his peripherals tell us every year he's going to be. This year's just been a disaster. I mean, just a complete disaster. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what has to happen to turn it around. But you know, it, it's it's it. Uh, actually, I do. I think a lot of it's pitch mix. I mean, I think that he's just throwing the wrong things in the wrong times, and they're getting tattooed. He he has to think about you know, throwing not fastball so much. But but right now, geez, what a mess. I don't see it turning around in the near term and if I if I had him I might consider, you know, even dropping him. I don't I don't see him as a viable pitcher um, in the league right now that's going to that's gonna do anything but hurt um, his owners. Okay, Doug, this has been great so far. We'll let you take a quick breather, get in some National League and American League news, and have you back in a few minutes. All right. Doug Dennis is the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, though, it's our Market Watch news reports on player news from the National League and the American League. Nick and Jock, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. The pitch. Drive right field and deep. Way back. Going, going, gone. Another home run for Reggie Jackson. And the Yankees lead 7-3. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. 
Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Philadelphia. Some bad news for outfielder Odubel Herrera of the Phillies. He was arrested on Monday after a reported domestic violence incident. Major League Baseball has placed Herrera on administrative leave, and that's a uh, function that they have within the collective bargaining agreement to deal with situations like this. Phil Hertz covered the story for Playing Time Today at Baseball HQ. Nick, what happens with Herrera on the shelf for as long as it takes to sort out these charges? And sometimes it takes a while. Well, so Herrera was already struggling, 11 of his last 63, but that's now the least of his problems. It's not clear how much time he's going to miss. Um, so for the moment, we're just cutting his playing time by 15% and leaving him with the majority of the time in center field for Philadelphia. Andrew McCutcheon moved to center for the May 28th game, but the guys who figured to get a playing time boost are Scott Kingery and the just recalled Nick Williams. Kingery has been really hot, uh, even his trip to the IL hasn't slowed him down much. Entering play on May 28th, he's gone 7 for 24 since returning from the IL. Uh, overall, a 294 expected batting average of 153 PX. We're giving him a 10 percentage point bump on playing time at this point. Williams lost his everyday job when Philadelphia signed Bryce Harper, and then he struggled mightily when he was given a chance to play. Before being demoted 10 days ago, he had gone 11 for 61. That's a 180 batting average, in case you're figuring with a 53px and nearly half the barely half the power of a league average hitter. Kingery was something of a touts darling in the preseason, Nick, but really he hasn't lived up to that billing. What's going on with uh, Scott Kingery overall? No, he hasn't. He's, he was supposed to be a guy who made a lot of hard contact and could run, and so far this season, in just 64 at bats, his hard contact index is 102, just a tick over league average, and his 3% walk rate is certainly not the stuff we dream about. He's flashed a little more speed with three stolen bases. We're projecting nine more, but we're also projecting a sub-250 batting average and very little power. He was an intriguing guy. Now, for this moment, he's just roster filler. Yeah, I don't know how really what to make of Scott Kingery. He was had so much promise, and then it just seems to vanish. Mind you, that happens. Uh, in Chicago, the Cubs outfielder, uh, actually more of a utility guy, been playing most of the outfield this year, Ben Zobrist, took a leave of absence from the team three weeks ago for personal reasons, and Joe Madden told the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper on Tuesday, the team is now looking at playing the rest of the season without Ben Zobrist. Uh, Tom Kephart is on the story for playing time today. Uh, Zobrist was already something of a shell of his previous self offensively, but there's still a whack of playing time to spread around with Zobrist gone. So what's going to happen? Well, right now our team analysts are basically cutting his playing time in half. And certainly if it appears he's not going to be back, the rest of that will disappear. Uh, Addison Russell is likely the primary playing time gainer from his absence as his production being promoted from AAA continues to win him playing time. Uh, currently flashing career-high con- hard contact, uh, contact rate, power skills, and a small sample at bat, but his 29% home run per fly rate does seem uns- seems like that's probably unsustainable. Uh, infielder David Boat's role has also increased. Uh, third base outfield Chris Bryant is uh, seeing even more action and less rest. Uh, Boat continues to be productive while playing both third base and second base. Uh, his BPV, expected batting average contact uh, rate, or suggests he'll be challenged to sustain the current level of production. Uh, Bryant missed uh, Chicago's two previous games with a neck issue, although he returned to the lineup with a bang, home running in the second at bat on May 29th. 
And of course, uh, Addison Russell, we should mention, has also had some uh, domestic violence allegations made. He was on administrative leave for a while, so that's lurking around in the background for him as well. We talked briefly, Nick, last week about Colorado outfielder Charlie Blackman, who left the game with a non-specific. they just said a leg issue, but now the news is that Blackman has a calf strain and he has been put on the injured list re- retroactive to the 25th of May. Rob Carroll covers the Rockies for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Um, what happens in Colorado with Charlie Blackman on the shelf? Well, Blackman says he's been feeling better every day. So if, if there's not a setback, we, and we and if we believe that that he's uh, telling us the truth when he says he's feeling better every day, he'll be back on the field as soon as he's eligible, which would be June the fourth. Uh, to date, Blackman has pretty much lived up to the standards he set during the past three seasons, uh, slashing 300, 356, 565 from the top of the Colorado batting order. And if there's any kind of an issue, it would be that his uh, a three-season downturn in stolen bases and attempts, seven for sixteen. For seven, sorry, seven seventeen for twenty-six in 2016, fourteen for twenty-four in 2017, twelve for sixteen last season, and just so far this year, just two for four in, in 2019. I am a Blackman owner in one of my leagues, and the red light is certainly flashing, and that does have me worried. And, of course, a calf problem, Nick, is not going to be helpful from that perspective. Uh, even if he comes back, he'd probably be taking it easy on the leg, cutting further into his stolen base potential, and therefore his value potential, because uh, there's a big chunk of his values tied up in stolen bases, as you suggest. Uh, who benefits in playing time while Blackman's out? Uh, Ray Tapia has uh, enjoyed a productive stretch largely at the expense of Ian Desmond, and he's been serving as Colorado's leadoff hitter in Blackman's absence. He's not an ideal leadoff guy. He doesn't have the plate discipline or the patience. Uh, 0.2, 0.23i, uh, subpar contact skills, 70% contact rate, uh, on-base average of 243 when leading off any inning, and that's not good at all. Uh, interestingly, he's been a terror when he's hitting 6th or 7th in the order, I, 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 OPS over a thousand, uh, so uh, not the greatest thing as a leadoff hitter for Tapia. Yeah, I'm a little suspicious of those kind of numbers because the sample sizes are relatively small. So uh, you know he could have a thousand OPS batting sixth or seventh, and you know it's one of those things, Nick, where we could say he's got a thousand OPS on days when the you know the moon is full or whatever, and it's just kind of random variation. But uh, sometimes guys do feel the pressure of a of a particular role. We talk about it all the time with closers, where a guy who hasn't been a closer gets that role and all of a sudden starts pitching less well because he's feeling the the, the stress of it. Maybe the same thing is true of, of having to move from 6th or 7th in the order, which is not considered a, a prime position, to all the way up to the leadoff spot. Now you're the first guy out there every day. Maybe it does have an effect. It, it might. you know. And the interesting thing about that, that number that we were looking at was, uh, and surely the, the percentage from the leadoff spot, the number is, is low, but, uh, but, but that number was, that, that 243 was leading off any inning, so not just as the, as the leadoff hitter in the game. So... Maybe there is some extra pressure when he's the first guy up in the inning and he thinks he's got to get on base to get things started and, you know, there's just something there that's not uh, not gelling. 
And, of course, you mentioned his plate discipline is not the kind of thing that we look for in an ideal uh, guy at the top of the order because in addition to trying to get on base, which he's not really doing that effectively, drawing a lot of walks, which he's not really doing that effectively, the team wants those guys at the top of the order to take a lot of pitches, to tire the uh, opposing pitcher out, but also to give the rest of the guys in the lineup an idea what's going on today, and then he can come back and tell his teammates in the in the dugout, here's what I saw with these nine pitches I saw in, in my first at-bat, and of course he's not seeing anywhere near those number of pitches. Uh, the Rockies called up an outfield prospect, Nick. A guy named Jonathan Daza, is there anything to look at with him? Well, he singled in his first major league uh, for his first major league hit when he was recalled, but since then he's 0 for 13. Um, like Tapia, he's put up some gaudy numbers, a lifetime 314 batting average in nine minor league seasons, including a 979 OPS in the PCL in 2019. Uh, that figure would rank him 30th among, among league leaders. Yeah, the uh, it, it it's nice that he's thirtieth in the league, but the uh, PCL is a notorious hitters league, and I don't know about you, but to me, just hearing the idea that this guy's been in nine minor league seasons is a bit of a, a red flag, because typically the kinds of guys who make a splash as prospects are younger than that and arrive in the major league sooner than that. Yeah, that may, you know, any time a guy's been in the minors for for nine years you begin to think there's some reason they haven't promoted him earlier and that there's something going on that the team knows about that would suggest that they don't really believe he belongs on a major league roster. On the other hand, Colorado's notably reticent about bringing up their minor leaguers, but nine years, yeah, that does seem like quite a while. Uh, over to Milwaukee, uh, news out of the Brewers camp has second baseman, third baseman Travis Shaw, who's been on the IL with a wrist injury, going just two for 19 during a rehab assignment in San Antonio at AAA. And now manager Craig Council says there's no timetable for Shaw to even come back to the majors. Tom Kephart on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's going on with Travis Shaw? Well, Milwaukee undoubtedly doesn't feel any real reason to rush him back. He was not being very productive before he was sidelined, uh, showing career low contact rate, uh, low power index, low expected batting average, uh, hard hit expected hard contact rate below his norms. Um, what his absence has meant is additional playing time for uh, Mike Moustakas, who's moved from second base to his more usual third base with him sideline. And Moustakas is now playing virtually every day instead of sitting against left hand some left-handed pitchers. Moustakas displaying career-best power skills, although his current uh, power index and expected power index at home per fly uh, are only modest increases above his previous peaks, suggesting sustainability. The uh, Brewers, uh, so, so it, that's fine at this point, but... They're, they're covered really well at third base with Moustakas. Yeah, that's what I thought when I first heard this news. And I like the uh, point that uh, that Tom Kephart made about uh, these increases in uh, power index, expected power index, home run per fly ball rate. They're up, but they're not spiking. And ordinarily, you might look at that and say, wait, I'd rather have a guy who's spiking. But sometimes you don't want a guy who's spiking because a spike can precede a, a fall back to normal. But slight increases look like they're, as he, as Tom suggests, more sustainable because they're not so dramatic. Right. Slight increases like that are what we, we if he keeps it up for the whole season, we, we would call it a growth season and look at it as, a, as part of a growing curve rather than uh, a very sudden spike, which, as you say, uh, can disappear at some point. 
Well, Nick, in my great fantasy baseball invitational league, I actually drafted Keston Hiura in the reserve rounds, and uh, just bef- I, I, I waved him to make another move, and then immediately, of course, got called up. Literally days after I waved him, what's the outlook for uh, Keston Hiura as a top prospect at second base? How, how do we like his chances? Well, we've, we've given him a twenty-five percent playing time bump. Uh, he got off to a slow start, batting uh, uh, two sixty-three home runs and forty-six at bats. Uh, only a 2% walk rate, subpar, 59% contact rate, uh, suggests a very aggressive approach currently in his initial major league exposure, and pitchers will very quickly learn to exploit it if he doesn't correct his plate approach. But he certainly has the pedigree of a top prospect. Uh, minor league records suggest he'll be a productive hitter. Uh, certainly more caution here than excitement so far, but as I'm recalling, I believe he has struggled initially every time he's moved up and then is adjusted. So um, I... This is certainly a possibility that he will adjust, even though he's not tearing the cover off the ball yet. And we talk a lot on this show, Nick, about the value of how the organization thinks. And Milwaukee has become one of those organizations that seems to make a lot of good decisions. And the fact that they're willing to let uh, Travis Shaw molder in the minor leagues or on rehab and trust Keston Hura to come up and fill that spot gives me some confidence that maybe uh, Hira will get sorted out. He will figure things out in short order. And I would certainly be willing to take a chance on him as I was before I dropped him foolishly in the uh, great fantasy baseball invitational. Uh, Finally, Nick, we have an update of a previous report. Uh, Rob Carroll of BaseballHQ.com reported in Playing Time Today that Arizona Diamondbacks left uh, right-hander Luke Weaver has been diagnosed with a right forearm strain, and he's going to receive a second opinion, according to manager Tori Lavallo, who says he hopes Weaver's not going to need any surgery, but forearm issues, yikes, Nick, always scary. Yeah, they are indeed. Weaver gave up a leadoff single to San Francisco's Buster Posey in the sixth inning of the May 26th game, and then left the game complaining of forearm tightness. Uh, the injury was later diagnosed as a strain, which is, as you said, accompanied by a lot of O's and the specter of Tommy John surgery. And until we know more, he's out for 10 days plus. And this is really too bad, isn't it, Nick, for Luke Weaver, who is actually starting to show this season why he was so highly regarded in past seasons and never quite lived up to it. But a three, uh, 303 ERA, 111 whip, and 68 strikeouts in 62 innings. He was getting the job done. Yes, and the skills uh, to back up that performance. Uh, uh, Stephen Nick ran. Baseball HQ's uh, Stephen Nickrand wrote recently that his 2019 achievements are strongly supported by his skills. 9.8 dom, 4.9 command, uh, newfound toughness against left-handed pitchers. Uh, 45%, 27% dom disc split is even more impressive, given the fact that two of his three clunkers were suffered in the first two starts of the season. Um, in addition to gaining, to hoping for a no-surgery scenario for Weaver, uh, Lavella will need to find complementary rotation pieces for uh, Zach Granke, Robbie Ray, and Merrill Kelly. Taylor Clark was recently recalled to take uh, Godley's spot. Uh, the early returns have been positive, but it's possible that Godley could now slip into Weaver's turn. And what about the top prospect, John Duplantier? Uh, Arizona's top prospect has been recalled. Uh, what do we think about his chances? He's already been recalled twice, and has had a, a handful of decent uh, relief pitching outings for the for Arizona. Um, so far in 2019, he's had trouble with PCL, 4.76 ERA, 1.41 whip in 17 innings. Uh, Jeremy Scherfee was recalled to take Weaver's roster spot, but then was swapped out for Stefan Crichton. 
Um, his last major league appearances were for Baltimore in 2017, 12 innings pitched, 11 earned runs. So uh, that doesn't seem like a good replacement. Uh, we've cut Weaver's innings at Baseball Base Q by just 1% right now, which is on the conservative side, and we're waiting for uh, a medical update. Yeah, you, know, you of course, we keep our fingers crossed for Luke Weaver that it'll all work out and, and uh, won't require any drastic interventions. But, boy, uh, so many times, Nick, we know that that forearm strain is a precursor of some kind of elbow problem. And uh, certainly, if you have Luke Weaver, now's the time to start thinking about what you're going to do without him because then if he does come back, it's a nice bonus. Right, very definitely. But you, you certainly, if I had Luke Weaver on a team, uh, I would be making contingency plans at the moment. Okay, Nick, thanks very much. Talk to you again in a week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now to the American League Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Patrick David, how are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, certainly I'm uh, in much better shape than most of the Houston roster. They... They managed to avoid significant injuries for the first month and a half or so, but lately they've just decimated by a series of injury stints that have really taken a toll on their lineup. Jose Altuve got a strained hamstring, then his replacement, Aledmus Diaz, another strained hamstring, followed by George Springer, another strained hamstring. And then to top it off at the end of the week, the Astros announced shortstop Carlos Correa is going to miss at least four weeks, probably more like six, with cracked ribs that he sustained while getting a massage at his house. Uh, you cover the Astros. You handle their playing time outlook for BaseballHQ.com. So they've kept you busy this week. What's the prognosis for all these players and how does the immediate lineup change with all of these injuries? Yeah, I think it's safe to say I was the hardest working guy at Baseball HQ this week. They, these injuries really came one on top of the, the other, and it was it's really been difficult to uh, figure out what's going on and, and still is until some smoke is cleared. Uh, but but let's start with uh, with the second base spot in Altuve, who, who's been out the longest. He's been out since mid-May. He was supposed to be back by now, but apparently he suffered a setback during the recovery that now's changed the timeline to, quote, sometime in June, unquote, which really leaves us guessing. Now, his replacement, Al Aledmas Diaz, was doing fine in his absence, but as you noted, he went down this past week. And he's not expected back till mid-June, so he'll be racing Altuve back. Uh, in the interim at second base, the Astros have gone with Tony Kemp, who hasn't offered much fantasy-wise to date, 222 batting average through 81 at-bats. And one of their numerous call-ups, uh, a 28-year-old named Jack Mayfield, who has decent uh, AAA numbers, but he's a bench profile. I assume they're going to continue this way until Altuve or Diaz returns, whichever one comes back first. Yeah, we were talking earlier with Nick about guys who get called up and they've been around the minor leagues a long time. Jack Mayfield, another one of those kind of guys, 28 years old, a kind of career minor leaguer, not a lot of promise there. Uh, the Springer and Correa injuries came right one after the other, and they did call up an interesting prospect, Miles Straw. He's a tremendous base dealer, 16 for 18 in AAA. He's got a decent batting average down there and a fair number of walks. He's a center fielder, as I understand it, but the Astros have been trying him in the middle infield in AAA to enhance his versatility. I assume he's up so that he can help out in the outfield, in the infield. Is he pickup worthy? 
Yeah, you would assume that he's coming up to play some center field. That's his calling. That's been his original position. And maybe some shortstop since the Astros played him in 24 games down in AAA. And now they have injuries at both spots. Uh, he's only been up for one game. He didn't play in the contest that he was activated for. But but I think he's, he's definitely uh, worthy of a pickup just for the stolen bases we have him projected at 122 at bats from now through season end it's not many at bats but if you look at the stolen bases 13 stolen bases is nothing to sneeze at right now given this given the scarcity uh, all this being said jake marisnik who's had a surprisingly good year as houston's outfield utility off the bench he's been patrolling center field in springer's absence uh, and he should, should still get most of the at bats here until or unless he fades yeah, I think uh, Marisnik's rocking an OPS over 850 the last time I checked. And I'm interested in the 13 stolen bases projected for uh, for Miles Straw. And the reason is this. 13 stolen bases could move you three or four points in the category in a lot of leagues. And that's even if he only hits 250, 240, something like that, league average. That's not not to be sneezed at, as you said. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it and it seems like a lot, 13 steals. But again, he's he's stolen 16 bases in 18 attempts. He was up last year. He stole a couple of bases in nine at-bats. Even if he's just pinch running or coming into the game, they're bringing him in for a reason, and that's to run. For his minor league career, 167 stolen bases in uh, about 1,700 at-bats. So maintaining that ratio pretty closely a few more caught stealings but if anything it seems to indicate he's getting better at stealing bases and we know that stolen bases is mostly speed but a lot of it has to do with technique and timing and understanding situations and those kind of things yeah i'm going to be very curious to watch the fab bidding on miles straw this weekend especially for teams that think that there's points to be gained from having a guy who can run Uh, meanwhile what are the prognoses for springer and korea and is there any chance with all of this shuffling that the the Astros are going to finally call up Jordan Alvarez or recall Kyle Tucker? Yeah, the real bad news for Houston right now is their offense looks like it's going to take a hit. Neither Springer nor Korea is expected return to return before the end of June, and both could be out until after the All-Star breaks. Uh, and yeah, given that, I suspect that one or even both of Alvarez or Tucker could uh, could could be uh, called up. Uh, Alvarez has actually been slumping a little over the past uh, couple of weeks in spring in uh, AAA, proving again that timing is everything, while Tucker continues to rampage. And, and it's interesting, with all these injuries, the Astros have been forced to use Tyler White almost every day, either at first base or DH, as Yuli Gurriel shifts to third base in place of Brett Bregman, who, who again, we're talking about the dominoes, who's, has shifted over to shortstop in place of Correa. Now entering June, White isn't showing any signs of an offensive uptick, so this could be the Astros' cue. I I just can't see them giving him everyday playing time at first base or DH for too much longer unless he does something with it. It's going to be a a very intriguing situation to watch. Uh, uh, As you said, the Astros is a bit of an embarrassment of riches, not just at the major league level, but they have a lot of options in uh, in the minor leagues as well. In Seattle, the Mariners also had a consequential week in the other direction. They're starting to see some of their injured players coming back. Kyle Seeger got back to third base, uh, but they did send J.P. Crawford to the IL. You also cover Seattle in your playing time tomorrow. Articles at BaseballHQ.com. How do these two events affect the Mariners well they're obviously thrilled to get the regular third baseman Seeger back he'd been out all season uh, with a hand injury with surgery um, they'd been going with Ryan Healy who's now on the, the injured list and then later with Tim Beckham at shortstop or I'm sorry at third base 
both of whom have been defensively challenged, to say the least. And the biggest reasons why the Mariners lead all of Major League in, uh, in errors by a wide margin. So Seager has no issues sliding back into his everyday spot, and he should provide his owners with at least the opportunity for some reasonable offense. His offense has been sliding the past couple of years per per uh, our information. Um, the, the loss of Crawford to a left ankle sprain is a real step backwards because it means that Beckham will get a, a lot more shortstop time. Uh, probably a plus for Beckham's fantasy owners in deep leagues. Uh, he's going he's gonna to get at bats. Crawford's expected to be out a month. I'll tell you what, I watched the Mariners play the Angels last night. Beckham made another big error. He booted double play ball with one out that led to two Angel runs. Um, the, the Mariners are now second to last ahead of only Baltimore and team ERA, and their defense isn't helping. So as a side note, uh, stream your hitters against uh, Seattle and look for upcoming pitchers in that organization. And, and not only that, not just streaming, but you might want to start thinking about well, how much roster time you want to devote to any Seattle pitchers, especially anyone who has a ground ball orientation. This defense uh, has never been terrific. It'll help that they get Seeger back, but if they have to play Beckham a lot, that's not going to be good. No, you're right. Uh, they think that Crawford's only only going to be out a month. They're hoping for less, but uh, the sooner they get Beckham back to a utility role, the better. In your neck of the woods, Jock, in Anaheim, Zach Cozart is back on the injured list. That can't come as a big surprise anymore. Uh, this time he has some inflammation in his left shoulder, and he's expected to miss what the team is calling an extended period. This has been Cozart's story ever since the Angels signed him uh, last year to a three-year deal. Where does this leave the Angels with Zach Cozart again on the shelf? Yeah, this is a situation not not quite as, as bad as Houston's, but it's kind of similar because the bigger angel, angel problem is the loss of shortstop Andleton Simmons to a grade three ankle sprain until sometime in July, probably near the All-Star break. Uh, a healthy Cozart would have moved from third base to shortstop as the Angels' next best defender there, but obviously that's not happening. It means that David Fletcher becomes a regular shortstop, and while he's competent uh, there, he's not, he's not the defender that... Uh, that either Simmons or uh, a healthy Cozart would be. Um, Tommy Lastella now becomes essentially the everyday third baseman. Ditto rookie Luis Ringifo at second base. Now, all of this is good news for their fantasy owners because at the plate, both Fletcher and Lastella have been lights out, uh, and there's now little question as to, as to their playing time going forward. Ringifo shows flashes. He's still an unknown commodity as a rookie, um, but uh, so I, I, I'm less certain about where he goes, where he is going forward at second. But aside from third baseman Taylor Ward, now in AAA, the Angels pretty much reached the limits of their experienced infield depth. What about their inexperienced infield depth? Are there any prospects that they might now be willing to throw the dice on? You know what? That's one thing I'm going to start looking up as soon as we get done this show. There, there's nobody that comes to mind. There's nobody really in AAA that's burning it up. If, if they feel Ward's defense is ready, they could bring him up and uh, uh, to third base and shuffle Tommy Lastella back to second. Um, that's one option they have. Uh, I'm going to be looking at, at, in detail at what the Angels' options are later on today. And while I have you, uh, Jock, you cover the Angels in depth. You're an Angels fan and supporter. You know the, the organization. What is the prospect of Jordan Adele, the prospect outfielder, coming up for any kind of significant playing time in 2019? I think that gruesome injury that he suffered where he hurt his knee and his ankle all on one play in spring training has tempered that a little bit. I, I watched Jordan Adele in spring training, and I was really impressed. I actually thought he might be up in August and September, but he's now just back to playing in high A. He's going to move to double A uh, 
pretty shortly here. He's already hit a couple of home runs. He's definitely on a fast track. The, the, the question that I have is whether they're going to wait until uh, next year to bring him up or bring him up in September. I can't see him coming up too much too much before then. Yeah, he's just 20 years old. Uh, he turned 20 at the start of this season, so he's very, very young and very limited minor league experience. That certainly was a blow. Over in the American League Central, Minnesota's rotation took a hit this week. They lost Michael Pineda, who had been pitching a little better after a rough start. He apparently has some tendonitis in his right knee. Seems like we're seeing a lot of knee injuries among pitchers these days. They're saying it's probably going to be a relatively short stint. He'll have his 10 days, maybe a couple more. What are the Twins going to do in his place? Well, they brought up a prospect named Devin Smeltzer, who I'd, ne- I'd never heard of. He's, he's apparently a soft tosser who who um, has very good command, and he tossed a very good game in his first outing. Obviously, it's a smallest sample size, but uh, he didn't give up any runs in, uh, in uh, six innings. Uh, he struck out seven Um and uh, the game was against uh, Milwaukee, so no no slouch there. Um, Minnesota's an interesting club. Um, his 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 uh, I should say Smeltzer's um, um, minor league call ups profile. They like him, particularly with a with a club like Minnesota, who's just who's just killing it offensively right now. Um, he's under the radar. Um, he's got good control. He's with a contender. Um, who knows? Um, he, he might be somebody in, in this era of pitching, with pitching injuries being what they are and pitching being as tough to find as it is, uh, he may be worth a pickup in most leagues, particularly deep leagues. Yeah, again, I'm going to be watching the fab bids this weekend with interest because uh, Smeltzer, as you said, a bit of a soft tosser, but in double A this year, he had an 060 ERA and an 073 whip in, uh, in, in, in five starts. Then he moved up to triple A and in four starts had a 182 ERA and a 109 whip. So he gave up some ground, but boy, not a lot of ground. And as you mentioned, his major league start was a success as well. He had th- six innings, no earned runs. It's not always velocity, but of course you like to see the velocity. But this guy is one of those guys. Maybe he just knows how to pitch. Yeah, exactly. And he's going to get support. And and in this day and age, pitching scarcity and injuries being what they are, you can't afford to be choosy, and you can't fight the tape. You got to go with the guys who are pitching well. We should point out that so far this year, at all levels, he's displayed a bit of a fly ball tilt, which is not so bad in target field, but you want to be careful uh, keeping an eye on him when he goes to other parks where the home run could be a problem. Uh, finally, in Boston, Mitch Moreland also landed on the injured list. He has a lower back strain and knee discomfort. They didn't give any return estimate, but what are the Red Sox going to do with Mitch Moreland out? Well, I'm not going to cry too much for Boston. They're still among the top MLB offenses. I think they're fourth in runs scored right now. They have a lot of veteran depth and uh, and even some really good first-year help so far in Michael Chavez. Who, or is it Chavis or Chavis? I don't watch enough East Coast games to, to get that one down yet. I but keep he's hearing Chavis. Okay, Chavis. That's what I thought. He's moved over from second base to first base versus uh, right-handers with uh, uh, Moreland out. Uh, Steve Pierce is still the option versus uh, lefties. The Red Sox have also gotten Brock Holt back from the DL to play second base along with Eduardo Nunez. Uh, it sounds like Moreland just needs a 10-day break. I think the Red Sox are going to be fine here. And uh, no call-ups to, to take Moreland's place with all of the seasoned uh, Major League veterans that they have. As you said, uh, Chavis not a seasoned veteran, but uh, with the people that they have on the roster, they can, they can move and patch and fill, and they're not going to really lose a lot of ground. 
yeah they have a lot of versatility and uh and let's face it uh Moreland is a is a is a is a good hitter he'll he'll pop one out occasionally he's not one of the primary guys on that team he's not Mookie Betts or uh or um, JD Martinez um they've got uh four or five names that they can that they can run in and out of different spots and Moreland's one of them um, Boston's going to be okay Matt Dodge covered that story for BaseballHQ.com in the Playing Time Today segment. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out with the American League. A busy week. I hope it slows down for you a little bit uh, next week, although you'll have plenty of news for us, I'm sure, when we uh, rejoin Baseball HQ Radio. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. But right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, co-general manager Ray Murphy looks at ADPs from the NFBC's second chance drafts, which were held on the Memorial Day weekend. In the watch list, scouting analyst Alec Dopp looks at infield and power-armed starter prospects to stash for later this year. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd validates the performances of five National Leaguers, including Javi Baez and Jesse Winker. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's those player performance validations in Facts and Flukes. We have news updates in Playing Time Today and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and bullpens with Doug Dennis. Fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse column. Injury analysis in the Big Hurt three times a week. And we have tools like the player projections updated every day. Daily dashboards and pitcher matchups tools and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. It's deep, award-winning content and powerful roster management tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Doug Dennis, bullpens columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, welcome back. Woohoo! I've made it to round two. Your most recent bullpen buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com was about what you called the relative value of relievers, which you called fickle and fluid. What did you mean by that? Well, it's just always changing. I mean, you can take a reliever who's had, you know, a, a terrific spring, comes out of the box hard and gets tons of strikeouts in April, doesn't give up any runs, and then turn around in the first week of May and he could hit a buzzsaw, give up three home runs in a week, and suddenly he's a bum. And, the, and, and a lot of that is due to the fact that the number of innings these guys pitch over the course of a season is, very, is, is relatively small. And, you know, they're the, especially for guys who are pitching in, in leverage, the team is counting on them to succeed every single time out because it determines whether or not they win the game. So there's a lot of pressure on them. When they fail, the team starts to think about what they can do differently or how quickly they can change things around. You'll see a guy succeed for, for, for weeks on end and then fail two or three times in a row, and he's replaced. So, yeah, it all happens very quickly. It changes really quickly, and um, you really can't count on much of anything. 
Your approach in the column was to take uh, these relievers' current year-to-date valuations and then compare them with their rest-of-season projected valuations, and you had some guys with really big negative gaps. So Marcus Walden of Boston has a $16 year-to-date value, but his projection is minus 27 for the rest of the season. That's a $43 swing. How should owners play a reliever with that kind of a, of a negative gap in projection versus uh, year-to-date? Well, obviously the answer lies somewhere in between, but the bracket is so big, you have to, you know, you have to guess as to where in between those things it's going to be. Um, obviously, Boston likes this guy. They're putting him in high leverage situations, and he's succeeding. So I'd say forget his projection. He won't. He wouldn't be in leverage for a team like Boston unless he was pitching well. Um, his peripheral support that too, so that's really helpful too. I mean, he has, you know, over 10 strikeouts per nine, and his um, strikeouts over walks is uh, 4.7. You know, and he doesn't give up home runs. So this is a guy that Boston is has turned into a, a, a pretty good reliever, and um, you know they're using him now to uh, to pick up a save here or there or pitch and, and leverage. Um, Probably he's number, in my view, number at moment number two to Barnes. So it's a it's a big jump, and um, I expect him to be getting positive value all year. Although I don't expect sixteen dollars. I mean, I think that's a bit much. I don't think there are any relievers um, earning sixteen dollars. Certainly not ones who are not um, saving several games a, a week. So. But, but wow, what a, you know, yeah, absolutely. Marcus Walden, whoever, whoever jumped on him first, good for you. On the flip side, Doug, you identified relievers whose paltry year-to-date valuations are belied by a much rosier rest of seasons, including some big-name closers, Jose Leclerc of Texas, Blake Trinan, Sean Doolittle. What common threads are there when reliable guys like these are, in your words, honking it up? Well, they're just, they're just underperforming their peripherals. I mean, Leclerc has a bad command ratio. He's walking too many guys. Doolittle's giving up too many hits and and has a poor um, expected ERA. And even Trinan um, has some command ratio um, adjustments he needs to make. But all three of them, you know, particularly Doolittle, but all three of them have some, you know, enough of a track record that you have to say, gee, if they just uh, could get their mechanics back to where they were last year, they're going to be elite again. So it's too early to give up on a guy like any of these three, even Leclerc, who I think he's an opener today or, or sometime this week. But, you know, they can all get it back on track. And when they do, the team's going to going to put them right, you know. I mean, trying to do a little is still closing. I mean, even though they're going through these struggles. When you were talking about uh, the uh, Boston guy, uh, Marcus Walden, it it struck me that maybe the big spread between year-to-date value and projected value might just be because the projection hasn't caught up with some kind of new reality. Is that a possibility? I would say that's absolutely likely. Um, I think that projections for relievers are much more fleeting than they are um, for most players. And again, it's because their their number of innings are small. Um, a change in their mechanics or pitch mix can really wildly affect their outcomes. The change in role, you know, if you have a guy who's a who's a lefty killer and he suddenly has to get right-handers out and can't do it, it's gonna it's gonna show up. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that success. Um, a role is a big part of that. Um, so, so yeah, I think that a lot of times our projections are this big aggregate. This is what we've seen so far, um, but what the reality in season, particularly over two months, 
could be completely different because of, of, of any number of these factors. And the uh, flip side of that, of course, is you've got a lefty specialist and you ask him to get right-handed hitters out, and he can. All of a sudden, he moves up in the pecking order because he, he now is a, a legitimate option for the manager without having to worry about that handedness issue. Yeah, I mean, you let, let me give you a great example. Um, Andrew Miller, everybody's heard of Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller was a was a terrifically hor- I mean, notoriously horrible starter at first. I mean, he was he was trying to start games and was just getting obliterated. And so they turned him into a reliever, and he was you know getting lefties out at a at a, at a really good clip and was deaf on lefties. So good for him. And then um, they suddenly figured out that he could get right-handers out too. And the next thing you know, he is he is saving games. He's pitching in leverage. He's he's doing multiple innings because he used to be a starter. I mean, it, it's it, it, it's remarkable how much a pitcher like Andrew Miller could not start at all, but then turned into one of the best relievers, you know, for a, for a long you know number of seasons stretch of, of excellence. So. Yeah, I mean, roles matter, and, and, and you, you see it with a pitcher like that, where they go from negative whatever to huge positive value. Yeah, he had 10 wins, I think, one year as a setup type guy and a 36 savior as well. So uh, once they figure it out or once somebody figures out what they have and can apply it intelligently, all of a sudden you see this huge difference. Uh, Doug, a week earlier, uh, you had a column called Storm Clouds Overhead for Some Closers. What should owners be watching for, fantasy owners, I mean, be watching for to see those storm clouds before they really start to gather and darken the sky? Yeah, you're looking at peripheral stats, you know, and what, what and what you're really looking for are soft skills um, that don't support success. So if you know guys are giving up home runs, if they have a high walk rate, if their expected ERA is way higher than what's actual ERA at the moment, if their BPV is low, their base performance um, value, if those things are not aligned to to, to success then you know that the player is probably not going to succeed um, long-term. And so those are the things that I look for. And when I see them, I'm, I'm often looking immediately past them for the next guy in line and whether they have the skill set to, to take over. One of the things we used to talk about at BaseballHQ.com was this idea of guile. It was the it was the third part of a three-legged stool that made a successful closer, and it was a kind of a catch-all for attitude and combativeness and competitive uh, you know all those kind of sort of you talk about soft skills these are really soft skills where do you stand on that idea that the closers have an attitude advantage over non-closer guys who can't succeed in the role i think that guys who have excellent skill sets and succeed in the role are said to have guile I think that players who do not have those good skill sets and do not succeed in the role are said to not have guile. I, I don't buy into it at all. I don't really see how I – don't, I don't recall – I mean, you can say anecdotally, here's a pitcher who had terrible skills and was able to still close games you know, for a short period of time. But over time, they're overwhelmed by their poor skills. And the opposite is also true, where excellent skill set, but for whatever reason, gave up a home run here or there and, and lost the role. But, but over the, the reality is, is over time, the skill set determines whether or not you convert, whether it's a save or, or just preventing runs to allow you to win games. And 
So I'm, I'm, I, I just don't. And not only do I not know how to measure guile, I don't believe in it at all. I just think it's a myth. I've always thought that when it came to guile, I would believe in it more for starters than I would for relievers because there's so many old starters who hung around for years, like just knowing how to get guys out. And over a longer period, that kind of that kind of skill, if you want to call it a skill, knowing how to pitch is is more advantageous the more innings you get to to throw because if you have a bad inning then you get three more to kind of straighten things out and get your decimals back in line but you know i, I can remember i'm old enough to remember fergie jenkins pitching when he was about 100 years old and uh, a couple of the old knuckleballers and stuff like that and i've always thought that if there's any guile to be applied we need to be ap- applying it to old starters rather than young relievers well cc sabathia right now is, is, a, is sure. a great example of that but what it is is, you know, when he was young, he could just blow the ball by everybody and he would succeed, and now he can't. So he had to find an, one of two things happens. Either you find a new way to get guys out, in which case you get to stay in the league, or you don't find a new way to get guys out and you are gone. So, you know, is that guile? I don't know. I guess it's um, do I have a pitch repertoire that still allows me to have good enough skill set to stay in the league? And that. Again, you can see it from their skill set as much as anything, but they've had to learn a second, complete different way of, of pitching and, and making it successful. So in that sense, that, that ability to learn new tricks, it, it, I, I guess that's guile. But you know, if you tell me which pitcher it is that can learn new tricks and which one cannot um, ahead of time, that would be, I guess that would be really valuable information. In your column, you talked about Seattle being a team that had a lot of potential options to close games, none of them especially terrific. Where do you see them ultimately turning out of the choices they currently have? Well, in three weeks, they're going to have Hunter Strickland come back, and I guarantee you when he comes back, they're going to just shove him in the roll and hope for the best, which, man, I don't think that's the way I would go if I were Seattle, but uh, no one asked me over there. Um, I think their best reliever is probably Brandon Brennan, I think he has the best skill set. I think they generally know it. Um, they're sort of they're sort of slowly easing him into better roles. Um, I think Elias is pretty good against lefties, and he had a pretty good season last year, and he's had some pretty good success saving games so far this year. Um, but I think they're going to be kind of a mixy matchy. Um, team where where no you know one guy is not dominating every every you know everything in that bullpen and they're going to move guys around and let Strickland get you know clean up those easy saves and 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 so I mean if you want saves Strickland's probably the guy in the near term although geez I don't really like Strickland very much. In Colorado, Doug, uh, Wade Davis has a 245 ERA, which is pretty good, but a 150 whip, and he's got uh, seven saves so far, which is also not bad. He's blown uh, none, so he's perfect in save situations, and yet you said there might be clouds on Wade Davis's horizon. Uh, how do you see that, and where are they going to turn if Davis doesn't start creating sunny skies? Well, he, he obviously gives up too many base runners, and that's you know, that's kind of the end of the road for, for a closer. But I, you know, he got hurt. So they've put Scott Oberg in with, with Davis hurt. I don't like Oberg's um, skill set either. I mean, his walks um, to strike out is terrible. Um, and yet he's in there um, in the short term and he's, you know, he's going to be closing games. I really thought that it might end up being um, Carlos Estevez. That turned out to not be the case. In fact, right on cue, 
I think Estevez gave up a home run and lost a game right at the moment where um, Bud Black was saying, no, Scott Oberg's my closer. So I don't think Bud Black looks at, at, at the peripherals at all. Um, I don't really know how to predict who Bud Black would use at a given moment. Um, but I'm worried that Wade Davis, with all of the um, base runners he was giving up, and it might be because he was hurt. Maybe he'll come back healthy and he'll, we'll clean that up. But if he's going to give up that many base runners, he's going to run into problems sooner than later. And, of course, Wade Davis, one of the main reasons for all those base runners is, is he's walking 15% of guys. I think in previous years it was under 10, uh, last year right around 10. And so far this year he hasn't given up a home run, which has to be a cause for concern because in that ballpark, sooner or later you're going to start giving them up, and then his strand rate goes up from 55% to, uh, I should say, front down from 85% to 55%, and he starts giving up runs like they're going out of style. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt. With Doug Dennis, a bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And Doug, during the season, I'd like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, let's start with some boons. Uh, these are guys you think should interest our listeners in one way or another. In the American League, who's a hitter you think could be a boon for the balance of the year? Well, of course, I think these things are very, very league-dependent. And so, you know, keep keep things in perspective for your own personal league. But... AL hitters, I, I really love Didi Gregorius coming back. He should be back in a couple of weeks. Um, he probably was very cheap or even you know could still be out there depending on what kind of league it is. And I think he'll come in and just be the same defense he was last year and at a premium position. So that's a guy I would look at. Um, I also like um, Eloy Jimenez. I think that once he gets going, he's going to have massive power, especially in that White Sox stadium. And in the National League, a boon hitter? Um, well, I'm a Reds fan. I love Nick Senzel. I love the fact that he's um, kind of hit the ground running there. He he runs, so he power and speed. Um, he's leading off, so he'll score plenty of runs for people. Um, and another guy that I like who's a little bit sneaky right now is Garrett Cooper on Miami. I think that guy, if he could just stay healthy – um, we'll hit we'll hit for average and power and then probably drive in some runs. So those are those are guys that I like in the National League. Nick Senzel's got a three forty two on base percentage as we speak, uh, which is really good for a rookie. Uh, over to the mound we go, American League pitcher who could be a boon. Well, I just was reading Gene McCaffrey over at the Athletic um, this week, and he's talking about Frankie Montas of Oakland to the point where he said he would trade Chris Sale straight up for Montas. And while I might not be that um, excited about Montas, I am excited about him for the balance of the season, and if I could sneak him on my roster, I would do it. Frankie Montas has had a pretty good year indeed, uh, 281 ERA, again, really good for a rookie. Uh, who's a National League pitcher who could be a boon? Well, the guy I like has been horrible, and that's Pablo Lopez on Miami. I think I have him on four of my, of my six teams, and it's just been disastrous. But I still think that he's going to be – I mean, his peripherals are terrific. He just isn't consistent. Um, he'll throw, you know, a one-hit shutout one day, and he'll get shellacked for ten runs in two innings another day. But I'm still hopeful that he's going to have uh, the balance of the season will 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 show that I'm right, um, and that he is going to be better than than you know a league average pitcher. Um, so Pablo Lopez, and you know, 
keep this keep this recording because if he's because if he's any good by the end of the year, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to refer to it. I'll do that. Uh, Pablo Lopez, a 3.6 strikeout to walk ratio, which belies most of the actual results that he's generating. 124 whip, uh, uh, ERA of well over five. But it doesn't make any sense. I agree with you there. Uh, Doug Dennis's Boons, Didi Gregorius of the Yankees, uh, Eloy Jimenez of the White Sox, Nick Senzel of Cincinnati, Garrett Cooper of Miami, uh, Frankie Montas of Oakland, Pablo Lopez of Miami. Over we go to the Baines, Doug, guys, about whom you think listeners should be cautious, I'll say. And uh, let's start again in the American League with a Bain hitter. Well, how about um, Jake Marisnik of, of Houston, who actually is a terrific fielder, very valuable baseball player, but I think he's going to get a playing time squeeze as, as Houston starts looking you know, to having their, their best outfield possible, which I think will include Kyle Tucker sooner than later. Um, when that happens, Marisnik's the guy who's probably going to lose playing time, and when he loses playing time, um, he's probably not going to be able to put up what he's done you know, the first two months. And, and might I say, he's probably playing a little over his head as well. So I would say Jake Marisnik. I love you, Jake Marisnik. It's not that I don't love you. I just don't think you're the guy I want on my team for the rest of the year. And, of course, looming in Houston's system, uh, Jordan Alvarez, another uh, big guy who could force his way into the lineup, and Jake Marisnik seems to be the bubble guy. You're right about that. Uh, in the National League, who's a Bane hitter? Well, same reason, um, Christian Walker. I don't think Chris. I think one. I think Christian Walker's playing way over his head. Good for him. I think it's gotten him way more playing time than I would have anticipated him getting so far this year. Um, I mean, he's starting right now, and Kevin Cron got called up and hasn't been starting. So obviously, he's got the manager in his corner. But I just think over time, Walker's gonna gonna not produce at the rate he has. And when that happens, his playing time's going to evaporate as well. Yeah, for now, not bad. But uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of holes in these in this skill set. I think uh, who in the American League over to the mound a, a pitcher that's a bane. Well, I think Jake Odorizzi. I think it's been smoke and mirrors. Um, he's been pretty lousy the last couple of years. One of the reasons he's doing so well is they're pulling him early in games instead of letting him, you know, languish and uh, at the end of the, you know, maybe going to a lineup uh, third time. But he he's a guy who's still pitching way over his head. I would look more at his expected ERA for the balance of the season than his actual current ERA. Um, that's a guy I would look to trade for sure um, probably as soon as possible. You know, I did a story about Jake Odorizzi, Doug, a, a few years ago for BaseballHQ.com, and he was kind of the poster boy for this first, second, third time through penalty that we talk about. And boy, the first two times through, he's consistently been excellent, and it was only because they kept forcing him out there for that third time through that he started to stink and, and run up these terrible, terrible numbers. So I guess a lot of it's going to depend on how interested Minnesota is on maintaining this uh, two times through limit on Jake Odorizzi. Uh, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher for you? Well, the guy who's got the big split and expected ERA and actually ERA is Zach Davies of Milwaukee. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's been unbelievable the first two months. Maybe the expected ERA will, will trend towards the actual ERA as well. Either way, he's not going to be worth as much as he has been to date, and that's another guy I would look to trade. Yeah, the last time I looked, his ERA was barely over two, and his expected ERA was well above four. And 
I understand that there's going to be some variability in both of those numbers, but when there's a two-run difference, I think that there's going to be something going on there, and it's not going to be helpful for his owners. Uh, Doug Dennis's Baines, Jake Marisnik of Houston, Christian Walker of Arizona, Jake Odorizzi of Minnesota, and Zach Davies of Milwaukee. Doug, this has been terrific. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Doug Dennis. Well, they can find me on BaseballHQ.com every Sunday. My uh, bullpen column comes out. And I'm also on Twitter, at DougDennis41. I'm not on Facebook. I hate Facebook. Got nothing for you there. All right, Doug, thanks very much for helping us out. It was really interesting. I knew it would be, and lots of fun. I knew that would be as well. Uh, Good luck the rest of the way. I'll catch up with you again during the year. Yep, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Doug Dennis is the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, our weekly talk with Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. The crowd standing, cameras flashing, and Rivera cool as a cucumber. The 1-0. Swung on, hit in the air to left center. Bernie trots over. Curtis is there. Curtis makes the catch. Ball game over. World Series over. Yankees win. Go! Yankees win. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. Your Z-Files column this week at uh, Rotowire touches on something that affects a lot of people who play fantasy baseball and often causes a lot of angst and, and difficulties mm-hmm. within leagues, but also people trying to figure out how best to work it even if it doesn't cause any kind of trouble and that's dump trading uh, before we get started in dump trading you say it's really important to distinguish a difference between keeper leagues and dynasty leagues what is the big difference and why does it matter uh the difference is it's the problem is there's no textbook definition it's it's sort of everybody might have their own definition uh the reason it's important, I'll, I'll explain my difference in a minute, but the reason it's important is uh, when you're asking for advice, the advice should be tempered to the specific league, Keeper or Dynasty. The, what you, how you deal with it yourself, I mean, you, you kind of know it doesn't matter if it's a Keeper or Dynasty as long as you know which it is and how to approach it. But the, the more important thing is if you're you know, asking for advice from on the radio or, or whatever, uh, it's a keeper league, blah, 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 and, and the, the advice might be different if it's a dynasty league, and people sort of interchange the two. To me, it has to do with player turnover and the, the draft that occurs. In keeper leagues, there is some, there's a wealth of talent of, of all tiers, if you will. Some of the top players are back into the pool because of expiring contracts and the whatnot. So you're always able to, you know, you may have to, as we say, pay inflated prices. But you can always pick up star players in the draft. Dynasty leagues, at least at the at the extreme end, basically the draft should just be the, you know, we're we're getting close to the, the major league draft. Those are the players that should be drafted. Are under prospects that have uh, developed since the last draft and under you know the the new players coming in in the June in the June entry draft, along with some fringe players. I, a lot of time you don't keep everybody. Uh, you you may, maybe someone drops a an aging Albert Pujols or something like that because there's only 20 or 25 roster spots. So to me, that's the main difference is the is the turnover and the 
it's important for the approach in that in a keeper league there should be more more I don't know dump trading's the word sometimes it has the wrong connotation but uh, there should be more you know present for future trading in a keeper league top prospects should be traded whereas in a dynasty league it's harder to come back after dealing some of your top prospects or top keepers away so you're sacrificing more of your future in a keeper league depending on the rules you can only be sacrificing one year you can only some some leagues you can rebuild in one year it's extreme you compete rebuild compete rebuild lather rinse repeat in a dynasty league a true dynasty league if you sell out to win you may win that year but you're probably now behind the eight ball trying to win in future years so it's, it becomes a question of how much value do you put on winning in a particular year, and that could be gauged in bragging rights. It could be money. There's a lot, a lot of different reasons that you would be willing to trade away three or four years of rebuilding time to win in the year that you're in versus in a keeper league. Uh, that's in a dynasty, but in a keeper league, you'd have uh, more of an incentive to deal because the rollover time is going to be shorter because you can always get new players at next year's incoming draft and some of them will be Mike Trouts whose, ex whose contracts have expired and there will be a, a broader range of talent. Exactly and, and the, the as we'll probably talk about it's so hard to put I, I don't really like the word value it's so hard to put a value on a prospect as it is it's 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 harder in dynasty format because you're you're not just wondering how the player will do next year or the next three years, you're projecting them out for their entire career, and that's you know that's if it's already kind of a, a roll of the dice, it's even more so. So I think you see more the trades you see in dynasty leagues. I don't I don't have I have not I, at least I haven't seen the top top prospects get dealt. It's not it's very rare you see the the Vladimir Guerreros get dealt unless it's done early in their in their prospect career before they really establish themselves as a top prospect uh more but whereas in a keeper league if you want to win if you got Vladimir Guerrero on your bench in a in a true keeper league he's the guy you want to trade because man you can get back so much for him and next year if if you don't have good keepers you you probably have a couple of solid non-keepers you trade them away for the next Vladimir Guerrero so there 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 can be it doesn't have to be one year one year off it, it that's that's sort of the extreme but it, it, in the dynasty league it I mean I've seen it I haven't I don't have the patience to do it but I've seen it done where it takes five maybe six years of not winning to win for the next three or four or five now we can talk about is the league going to last that long how do you know is that the right approach or whatever but you know, so you know, if you, need, if you get into a, a, a dynasty league, don't do it willy nilly. Get it with a bunch of friends that have similar uh, objectives, etc. For the long haul, but um, it can be very satisfying to wait three or four or five years and then just be the top of the heap for the next three or four or five years. Well, we we know what a dump trade is. You call it uh, to be nicer about it, I guess, a future for present type of deal, but. <laughs> Generally speaking, we all understand that it means you're an also-ran team, so you trade away overpriced studs, expiring contracts, guys you don't want to keep for the future, and you get back low-priced players, top prospects, those kind of things. It all depends very much on league context and league rules. But there's a key question here, no matter what the situation is, as an owner, how do you know whether you're a contender or an also-ran? 
Yeah, it's tough. It's already we we've talked about it in, uh, in the past couple of weeks. It's a time of year you make the you take stock of your trade. You do the plus minus in the categories. You look at pickups and, and try to figure out how many points you can gain. In a keeper in a keeper league, it's it's especially like you say if there's money, you know, jokingly say jelly beans on the line. It's important. It, you're invest. You're not you're not investing time. You're investing your hard-earned capital. And it, it matters. So it's it's tough because you've got to not only try to plan out your present team, how they're going to perform. you got to literally estimate or you know fig, try to figure out what trades are going to be made. Who What what prospects do the competitors, the number one team right now have a plush farm system? Are they going to be able to get even better? Or are they kind of just hoping that dump trading doesn't go on as much this year as it usually does and maybe they can hang around you know is is the fifth place team just kind of biding their time for other teams to decide they're not going to compete and they're going to trade their really really good farm players or, or young keepers and suddenly go from fifth to the to the money spots really quickly you know they're just sort of you know waiting in the, in the shallow end and to, before they before they jump into the deep end you have to make all these decisions and it's tough and what makes it even tough to me what makes it even tougher and uh, you know, we can talk about this. I, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. Is dump trading is unlike in a redraft league. You can, I mean, whatever your currency is for for value, it should be points gained, points lost of, of both teams. But you, you can objectify the trade in that you can sort of you can quantify it. I should say not objectify. You can quantify the trade and and try to deem equity in that manner. Dump trading is harder, and not just that. At least I find, and this is the part I'm curious what you feel. I find dump trading is is is, is there's so much more of a human element to it. You're not just convincing the other person that you'll each gain and lose similar points in the standings. You're you're selling them a car. You're selling them a house. It's 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 in, and not everybody has got the mindset is wired to be able to negotiate and 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 deal in a dump trade because you're you're dealing you're not dealing equity you know you're you're talking someone into doing something often and it's not everybody is as good as someone else at doing it and therein lies a real problem Todd uh, I played in a keeper a single league uh, AL only for many years and uh Every year, the huge bone of contention was these dump trades, and there was one guy in particular in our league who was just a real terrific salesman is the only way I can put it. He made some right. really horrendous deals that cost other teams championships. He, he won championships, and uh, at one point, it got so bad that uh, two or three of the other teams ganged up, and uh, this guy was in first place, and they just... They traded away like Ken Griffey for a draft pick and, and those kind of things to the second place guy just to make sure that the first place guy wouldn't win. And at that point, you're not even any longer dealing for the sake of trying to win. You're dealing for the sake of tr trying to prevent somebody from winning. And it gets into personalities and there gets to be arguments. And pretty soon, I know of leagues that have failed because of this. And, and then teams have to kind of grapple with the whole idea of what constitutes fairness and what constitutes equity. And this is a, a subject that you actually address in the column, which is the idea of the going rate. I mean, you say, you know, to, when you're planning your your tactical approach to who you want to trade with and what the deal ought to look like. You need to understand what your league's tendencies are, which you call a going rate. And then you immediately acknowledge that for a lot of leagues, there is no going rate because everybody does it differently. 
Yeah, that's the thing. So you, you can try to look back and uh, the, we, we hear us talk about the XFL a lot. The XFL is actually a league where it's 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 a it's a keeper dynasty hybrid, but that's sort of irrelevant. The point being the trades that are made, you can go back and look at previous years and what one gets for a third round supplemental pick or gets for a a cheap closer or whatnot. It's fairly consistent year to year. Whether it's by whether it's our personalities and we this is what we all do is go back and look on the archive deals or whether it's just for whatever reason we there's no horse traders in this league i don't know but you can go back and if if you know if you're if you're a competitor and this year you're dumping and you're really not sure what to ask for whatever you can go back and look at uh, previous deals and, and get a feel for it i've been in leagues where that that isn't the case and it's, it's probably because there's one or two people that are able to use the economic you know market salesman point of view and you know i've got the best you know i've i've got uh, who maybe Wander Franco? See the best, uh, see the best minor leaguer now in a dynasty league or a keeper league. Maybe I've got you know Wander Franco, and uh, the, you can there if he's the best prospect available. If you want him, you you got to pay me you know out the wazoo of you know your your expiring Max Scherzer and your expiring Mike Trout or whatever it might be. You can if you want the best prospect, you got to pay me. And there's no there's no well how much is this guy going to earn for five years versus this that there's no math. It's just a convincing argument that I've got the best prospect. You're going to have to pay out the pay, pay through the roof, and that doesn't set a precedent for the next deal. What it does is it gives the next person the, the, the with the prospect, you know, below below Franco. I don't know Alex Karoloff, something like that. Now he's got the hammer because he's got the best or she's got the best prospect, and depending upon how good of a salesman he or she is, is what they get. So this the the, the precedent isn't the same. And the other part about it, and and I think we've both seen this in our leagues. Right now, you're trying to. There's some dump trading going on, so you approach a team that you don't feel is going to compete, but they're they're not dropping out yet for whatever reason. No, no, not ready yet. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on to, uh, you know, hold on to my 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 expensive Mookie bets for now. I need him, and in a month maybe they're not, still not competing, and they're willing to give in. So if if that the, the, right now Mookie bets is not part of the supply and demand curve. In three or four weeks, he he very well may be, and there's some other deals that have gone on in the, in between. Sure, it's better to get keepers now or players now to help. Not keepers. It's better to get players for 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 the, for this season to help you now because you get them that extra time. But sometimes it's better not to get the secondary available players now and wait two or three or four weeks and get the studs when the next wave of dump trading. It used to be that the the dump trading it didn't really occur till later in the season. And I, I don't know why. It's just the, the past, I don't know, I've been saying five years. Now it's closer to ten. That's kind of loosened up. And I, I'm in a league, I mentioned the XFL, where trades are made before the season even begins of the dump variety. So, you know, we can talk in the spring about legislating how to control this, temper this with salary caps and some other, you know, but that's it's in season. You can't do that now. That's a conversation for the spring. There are ways to help help at least keep the competitive balance somewhat equal, even with the person that really knows how to trade really well. 
And that's a critical element too, Todd, isn't it? Because you mentioned Wander Franco. So even if there's a general league consensus that he's the best prospect, he's the guy everybody wants to have, he's this year's Vladimir Guerrero or the past year's Mike Trout or, or uh, you know, other guys who didn't succeed quite as well. But every year there's a, there's a prospect that everybody just covets and they really think I could build a future team around this guy for four or five years. And so they're willing to, to really uh, offer a, a real handsome package. But then the, the next thing comes along is so now Wander Franco's been traded and let's say he got two studs and a uh, and a you know a reasonable sort of second tier starter or something like that, that becomes the the league equity for a Wander Franco level guy, and then you're standing there with the next in line with Alex Kirilov. Now the argument becomes how good is Alex Kirilov or how valuable is he relative to Wander Franco? And you're right back to arguing about it because we don't know. All of these things are very tan, uh, very uh, f- um, variable, especially when you're talking about prospects. So you may come to me with Alex Kirilov and say, look, I don't expect the same thing that uh, Joe got for his uh, Wander Franco, but you got to come close. And I could say, I don't think so, because I think Wander Franco is literally twice as good as Alex Kirilov. So I'm only going to give you half as much. And then we're right back to arguing. And then we're right back to salesmanship. Not just that. I mean, yes, exactly. That's, that's, but the other, the other end of it is what if Wander Franco's, uh, what if the person selling Wander Franco isn't very good and so you know, I I know that I know that's I know that I know this person kind of doesn't push deals, just takes what they get, and I, I offer him a reasonable deal, but it's not quite as much as he could have gotten. So now that's the precedent. But now you're you're good at, at this sort of thing. You don't care just because this other guy got less and so from Wander Franco. You you recognize the market. Kirilov's by far the best keeper. If you want Kirilov, you know you can get more than the other person got for Franco. That's that's the difference in a keeper or in in a keeper league is the equity is is part of it, but so is the salesmanship. And that's that's sort of the thing is is, is, is you know I'm, I'll admit I'm not good at that, and, and it hurts me in keeper and dynasty formats that I'm not I'm not good at. You know, I you won't want you don't want me as your wingman when you're buying a car, you know it, you know you don't want me selling a house because I will take the first offer, run and you know and and, and not and not wait. It's just uh, I just I'm not good at negotiation like that for whatever reason. So that's and it, it, some people think it's the issue with keeper leagues. If if it's to me, it's the elegance. It's it, it can be done. There are leagues that last a long, long, long time, and this is all part of it. Because even though we're saying that you know one a better trader than the other, there are controls in place so that there are checks and balances. It doesn't occur year after year after year, salary cap or, or whatever it might be. But um, it is, and I didn't talk about this in the article because it's more of a, a preseason piece about about how to set up a league than it is to deal with it once it's there. But you know you you don't want to go in a money league unless you're sure it's gonna last for a long time, all that sort of thing with you know trustworthy people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know this this piece sort of assumes all right, you're in a league, it's a good league, it's gonna be around a while. This is how to approach it. And membership in the league actually plays a pretty significant role because uh, when I was talking earlier about the league I was in with the one guy who was a very successful trader, uh, there were enough, you know, sharks and guppies, we'll call them. And there was a few sharks and a lot of guppies. And this guy made his living harvesting the guppies. And when you talked about the XFL, 
the difference there is everybody in the league knows what he's doing. It's an it's a league of very experienced players, very experienced experts, and they're much more capable of exercising objective evaluation rather than being subject to the subjective evaluations like, oh, you should really want Wander Franco because he's going to be the next Mike Trout. Well, maybe right. he is, probably he's not, but but that's a sales technique that you mentioned going to buy a car. That's the kind of thing the car salesmen say all the time. You know, you'll get more girls if you drive this car. And right. of course, it, it very seldom turns out to be true, but that's the kind of thing that you end up pitching. And that's where the ill will starts to get created. Yeah, no, exactly. I said it in this piece, like, you know, we can talk about whatever we want, not necessarily talking about the piece, it's the basis, but I didn't get into all this because it, it's, 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 it's very true. Although I can say that let's tie it into the piece and I could have talked about it is sometimes I've done this once and I've seen it done a couple other times. Sometimes you know that, it, that if you make a deal, it's going to cause disruption and it, you know, you're building for the future and you, you could be, you know, digging a hole for the league by making this deal. And it's now, it's a, is it my best interest to do this? Even though I can get this incredible prospect hall, it's going to cause so much dissension that there's going to be people quitting and I have to get new people and this and that and the other thing. So I've, I've actually seen it where you, you don't accept an extreme deal just because you're afraid that it's going to disrupt the league. So you accept something's really good, but it's not, quite to that level you don't want to call you know you're still getting ahead etc 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 you're kind of ensuring that the league will stick around and i, I said I've, I've i've done it i've done it once uh and it was actually on the other end it was getting you know it, it was it was you know i was willing to deal so many top prospects and um the the other person you know was kind of like well i'm not so sure if we could do this you know and it's like wow i'm willing to do it and it's, oh let's do a let's do a lesser deal i don't want to get everybody too angry so well okay your call but uh yeah that, that it's it's you're bringing in i talk about the human element as far as just being able to trade and say no you know that's my issue is i have so much trouble saying no i can't take five if i if i feel five offers that means i have to say no to four people and i go to bed thinking there's four people around the country that just po'd at me and they're not they're not even thinking you know they're not thinking anything you know, my my name is hasn't popped into their head since i said no they're on the other things but in my head they're they're all they're all mad at me I and mean, that's just you know anyway but uh the, the that's part of the to me the fun of keeper league and dynasty leagues it's a. Uh, it's more than players. Is that there is a human factor to it that that, that to me adds. It may be non-baseball, but it adds the skill. It adds the fun. It adds to the enjoyment. And that's the key, right? I, if if yeah. you're playing in a league where dump trading or future for present trading is allowed, that and and everybody's okay with it, and everybody understands that that uh, things are going to change. And one of the points you make in the list of uh, kind of wrap up that you do at the end of the piece is. Um, one trade very seldom changes the entire outcome of the of the of the league race, especially if a trade happens at this early point of the year because so many other things can happen to affect the race, including the second place guy and the third place guy now have their uh, marching orders, if you will. They know that they have to do something, and that they will go out and that maybe their hands are a little weaker because everybody knows they need to to respond. 
there's a first mover advantage, maybe, it, but you, you never know. Don't worry that making a future for present value trade, a dump trade, is going to destroy your league. Now, if you play in a league where you've had trouble in that regard, then as, as I did when I played in that league, eventually we just sat down as a league and we said, we have to change the rules and ban this. And we did in the league. I'm not in the league anymore, but it's going strong now into its 35th year or something like that. And at some point, you just got to decide what's going to make all the membership the happiest. Yeah, no, specifically, you, you, people, we talk in redraft leagues. We talk about it all the time. And in Tout Wars and Labor, I don't want to make a trade that's going to adjust, that's going to affect the standings. Well, you know, all I'm doing is moving from eighth to sixth. What does it matter? There's no money on the line, blah, blah, blah. In a keeper league, as you say, don't worry if you if you're if there's if there's Vegas odds and making a trade makes one team the prohibitive favorite, don't worry about it. It's not your problem. It's now the onus, as you suggested, of the other competing teams to make a similar move to compete. And if they're not willing to do it, that's not your problem. That's their problem. You know, it, it, depending upon you know in the dynasty league, maybe you're less willing to do it. In the keeper league. You know, you better be willing to do it if you want to win. So you sort of have to go in with that mindset is I don't you know, I want the best deal for me. I'm not looking for the league. It's up to the league to then adjust and 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 make sure that there's an actual race. And it, sometimes it's just it's, it's really frustrating when when one of the teams is just so far ahead that they don't have to deal their top keepers you know they dealt some secondary keepers to to get where they are but they kept their top keepers and now the second and third and fourth place teams don't feel they have a chance to catch them so they don't they don't make any moves to try to catch them to force the other team to deal their top keepers so now you have a team that wins and didn't have to deal their best keepers this is more of a keeper than dynasty, you know, scenario, and that's you know, for, and, you know, when you're in the middle of the pack, that's really frustrating. And this has happened in the XFL, and I'm not saying anything wrong with it. It's just, it's just, I'm not mad. It's just, it's just frustrating that, darn it, this guy won, and he's probably going to be competing again next year because he still has so and so and so and so on his farm. I really wish that something had happened that these other guys, and I don't necessarily blame the other guys for, for not chasing him because it just wasn't going to happen. So this is it's just one of those other dynamics where you have to be aware of what's going on and and uh, to me one of the beauties of the XFL is it's it's a keeper dynasty it's kind of both and to me if you if I'm if I'm setting up a league I'm honestly doing it in this nature what I mean by that is as far as the turnover goes there's some turnover at the top there's some good players available because we we have contract accelerators but we have no year limit so it just becomes when the player is so expensive so there's some turnover but there's also uh mike trout for instance we talked about him before uh i think he's 25 dollars this year he started at one he goes up by three because he was drafted as a farm player and he will he may never may never be in the pool as far as our auction goes until his twilight years so it, 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 I like this league in that you you can play it like a keeper league and just dump it, dump everybody and and you know give up and, and just be a terrible team next year. Or you know Doug Dennis from Baseball HQ and we're all watching this. He's just he spent four or five years building up what should be a team that competes. It, it is just so solid across the board because all he's done is draft minor leaguers. 
once you know he needs to supplement with pitching if he can supplement with the pitching he should just dominate on paper for five years who knows what'll happen this guy gets hurt this that the other thing but he's going the opposite route where he's trying to he's treating it like a dynasty league like a true dynasty league so we got some people like me that can't be patient and are trying to win in one year and and, and compete and and, and uh, rebuild the next and have not successfully done either and we'll see we'll see how successful doug is uh, as far as uh competing for a, a longer stretch of time it's kind of it's kind of cool how the the, the the hybrid versions where you you know you don't you don't keep eight you don't keep 25 we're keeping 15 you know we're just sort of like in the middle of all the different potential rules with respect to keepers it is an interesting thing. I think the bottom line, as we said, is uh, do what's best for your league, but ask your league yeah. mates what they think. And if everybody can get on the right page, then you'll have rules that you can live with, that you can enjoy, and that you can have fun with. Todd, uh, we have rules. Our rule is let's talk about fantasy baseball. I really enjoy it. I wouldn't change our rules at all. I do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again next week. I can live with that. We'll talk, we'll talk soon. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer pitcher matchups, and master notes, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitches a high fly ball to right deep, going back is Tarasco, to the warning track, to the wall, he's under it now, and it's taken away from him by a fan, and they're going to call it a home run, I can't believe it! Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run! HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Toronto right-handed starter Nate Pearson. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Two months ago, March 29, 2019 to be exact, we reminded you that our frequent flyer of the week, Tehran Guerrero, was one of only three major league pitchers to break the 104-mile-per-hour barrier in 2018. The other two? Jordan Hicks and Roldis Chapman, of course. So why do we bring this up? Because 22-year-old Toronto flamethrower Nate Pearson has the ability to do something and to be something truly special as a pitcher. He's in the process of proving that after missing pretty much all of the 2018 season after breaking his arm with an injury similar to Corey Kluber's in 2019. Therefore, Nate Pearson is likely facing a strict innings cap in 2019, meaning, realistically, they might not see significant time in the majors until 2020. Remember, he's still at double A. That's why Nate Pearson, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, Nate Pearson did light up the radar gun with a jaw-dropping 104 miles per hour in the Arizona Fall League, already putting him in rare company. Remember, Roldis Chapman is credited with setting the record with a blistering 105.1 mile per hour fastball in 2010, and Nate Pearson really isn't that far off. 
Then again, if you account for radar placement, according to a 2015 Sports Illustrated report, Nolan Ryan's legendary 1974 heater was clocked at 100.9 miles per hour, and when adjusted, was really the top speed ever at a blazing 108.5 miles per hour. Wow! Yes, those numbers are truly dazzling, but what about Nate Pearson's overall career numbers of the minors thus far? He currently sports a 146 career ERA in the minors. Perhaps more impressive is that he's only given up nine earned runs, four of them home runs, and only issued 11 free passes in his minor league career. Not in 2019, but in his minor league career. So how do his nine earned runs, 11 walks, stack up to his strikeouts? Oh, he is 79 of those. That translates to an elite command ratio of 7.2 strikeouts to walks, well past double the three strikeouts to walks benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. And his command ratio for 2019? Nate Pearson's off-the-charts command ratio of 8.7 strikeouts to walks in 2019 is almost triple our three strikeouts to walks benchmark for baseball's best pitchers. So that extreme combination of velocity and command can only mean one thing, that you should consider adding Toronto's flame-throwing Nate Pearson as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups, and here with some key weekend showdowns, including the marquee matchup with Washington right-hander Max Scherzer in Cincinnati to face right-hander Luis Castillo on Sunday, it's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Attention, attention, all Astros and Rangers hitters, please report immediately to the lineups of Baseball HQ Radio loyal listeners for Hitter Heydays this weekend. Opposing the Astros are A's starters Chris Bassett and Brett Anderson, who have two of the bottom four matchup ratings for a combined minus 205. Even in the pitcher-friendly Oakland Coliseum, that's a negative number to make hitters happy. On top of that, Astros starters Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander own the top two matchup ratings of the weekend. 296 for Cole and 252 for Verlander. That's a combined 548, making the two marquee mismatch matchup rating differentials total a whopping 753. Houston pitchers should profit as well this weekend. The other Texas team is at home in hitter-friendly Globe Life Park to take advantage of an honorable mention set of marquee mismatches from another pair of pitchers with matchup ratings below zero. Kansas City's Homer Bailey and Brad Keller have two of the bottom three matchup ratings for a combined minus 223. For our marquee matchup, let's go to the unlikely location of hitter-friendly Great American Ballpark in the Queen City, where Reds ace Luis Castillo has a strong start matchup rating of 152. The opposing pitcher Max Scherzer also has a strong start matchup rating, and it's just 8 points better at 160. Scherzer's struggling Nationals cost him dearly, as his component matchup rating for win probability drags down his overall matchup rating to the tune of a discordant minus 116. In 12 outings this season, Scherzer has 9 quality starts, 7 PQS doms, and only 2 wins. Working on a string of 10 consecutive seasons with 30 or more starts, Scherzer is suffering from career-worst hit rate luck of 37%. He has career second-bests in 3 measures, expected ERA, control rate, and command ratio, 
The 34-year-old Scherzer has career bests in six metrics. His ground ball rate of 45%, his fly ball rate of 34%, his first pitch strike rate of 71%, his swinging strike rate of 17%, his average fastball velocity of 94.8 miles per hour, and his BPV of 183. The 26-year-old Castillo hasn't been half bad himself. He began rebounding from a subpar first half last year with BPVs in July, August, and September of 128, 139, and 141. This season, Castillo is posting a BPV of 118. Castillo has a career-best expected ERA identical to Scherzer's at 302 to go along with four career-bests in ground ball rate at 61%, fly ball rate at 23%, dominance rate at 10.6 strikeouts per nine, and swinging strike rate at 15%. But unlike Scherzer, Castillo comes with warning signs as well. He's benefiting from a fortunate hit rate of 26% and strand rate of 81%. Castillo's career-worst control rate of 4.1 walks per nine is supported by his career-worst first-pitch strike rate of 51%, leading to a career-worst command ratio of 2.6 strikeouts per walk and casting doubt on his whip of 111. In addition, Castillo's career-best home run per nine rate of 0.6 is likely headed for regression toward the National League mean of 1.1, and two of his three PQS disasters have been in his past two starts. Our honorable mention marquee matchup is in humidor-friendly Chase Field. 35-year-old Zach Grenke goes for the Diamondbacks at home with a matchup rating of 112. The visiting New York Mets bring in 31-year-old Jacob deGrom, who has a matchup rating of 172. DeGrom began the season with two PQS doms, then had two PQS disasters, then three PQS doms in four outings, and now two PQS disasters in his past three starts. DeGrom has a career-worst first pitch strike rate of 62%, home run per nine rate of 1.3, home run per fly ball rate of 16%, and second-worst in expected ERA at 340 and control rate at 2.6 walks per nine. But all of those marks are either better than NL averages or right around them. And DeGrom also has career second-bests in dominance rate at 11.0 strikeouts per nine, swinging strike rate at 15%, and BPV at 150. Plus, DeGrom's average fastball velocity is a career-best 96.4 miles per hour. He's given up two earned runs or fewer in seven of his starts, but three or more earned runs in his four others. Grenke's lone PQS disaster was his first outing. Since then, Grenke has gone at least six innings in each of his next 11 starts, posting seven PQS doms, allowing one earned run or less six times, and never allowing more than three earned runs. Grenke has a string of 11 consecutive seasons starting at least 26 games, and is posting career second bests in whip at 0.88, first pitch strike rate at 67%, and roto and 5x5 values at $28 and $29 respectively. Grenke's control rate of 1.3 walks per nine and command ratio of 6.6 strikeouts per walk are career bests, and his BPV of 140 is third best. Even though the matchup ratings slightly favor DeGrom and he should produce a useful start, Grenke has been more consistently reliable and deserves the edge in expectations. To recap, stack Houston and Texas hitters, stick with Max Scherzer and Zach Grenke, and use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to pick your pitchers. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about applying the Lima plan in the season. 
Most fantasy owners and players are familiar with the Lima plan, Ron Chandler's venerable strategy for exploiting a market inefficiency affecting the perception of value regarding middle relievers. The strategy, as you probably know, is to shore up your pitching decimals for a buck per pitcher or so. That leaves you more to spend on the Verlanders and Scherzers or on beefing up your bats or both. Lima is most often employed and thought of as a draft strategy, but as I was going through some roster management ideas this week, I started to wonder if Lima has some applicability in season as well. So I did a little game planning, including doing the math, to see whether a team might do better by adding Lima pitchers than second-rate starting pitchers when it comes time to make moves. And the short answer is, maybe. I did an exercise using a 15-team mixed league, since middle relievers are already widely used in only leagues. I started with an example team from a publicly viewable league with this current stat line. The team had 36 wins, good for second place. 12 saves, only 13th. 401 ERA was good for 12th, a 125 whip, good for 10th, and 486 strikeouts, good for 3rd. Now, this team just lost a pitcher to a season-ending injury, and so they're going to have to hit the fab market on the weekend to fill that empty pitching slot. Of course, there are no closers available, so the question is whether to go for a free agent starter or a free agent middle reliever. The exercise starts by projecting the pitching categories at year-end using Baseball HQ projections with just the eight pitchers already on this team's roster. In listing the categories, I also want to note which opponents in the individual categories are also competitors of this team in the overall race. Then the team downloads a list of the league's free agents for the week and gets their HQ projections as well. The top projected starters in projected wins are Brad Keller, Antonio Senzatella, Jason Vargas, Jose Ureña, and Adam Wainwright each with seven projected wins. Now, seven wins would squeak this team past one opponent, and that opponent is also an overall competitor, and that's worth a bit extra. The gain is plus one point with a clear chance at another, plus that benefit of passing the competitor. In strikeouts, Keller, Urania, and Wainwright are all in the low to mid-70s projected to year-end, which would again squeak them past one opponent, a different overall competitor, but the margins here are very thin. Call it a gain of one point, and let's eliminate the low strikeout guys, Senzatella and Vargas. That leaves Keller, Urania, and Wainwright, and they all have projected ERAs and projected whips higher than this team's current final projection. Adding any of them, therefore, means pushing this team backwards in the decimals. Keller's projected ERA of 4.417 creates a loss of two points in ERA, including one point lost to one of the overall competitors. Urania costs one point to an overall competitor as well and is close to losing a second. Wainwright is a two-point loss, including that competitor point. The story for these starters is similar for projected whips. Urania does narrowly hold the team's current spot, while Wainwright costs his team one point and Keller costs two, in both cases to a competitor. So of this group, the best choice looks like Urania. You'll get a one-point gain in wins for this team, with some narrow margins to gain, but possibly lose, a point or two more. So what about those Lima middle relievers? The top choices in the free agent pool came down to Andrew Miller, Craig Stammen, and Luis Sessa. These guys all have really good skills. We went through the same calculations and showed no help in wins, saves, or strikeouts, though obviously adding anything in the counting categories is better than adding nothing. 
Even four or five vulture wins moves this team closer to fluking out a point or two in that always volatile category. Miller also has five projected saves, which would help the team get within shouting distance of an added point in that category. But as noted earlier, the advertised benefit of these Lima pitchers is in the decimals, and each of them does deliver some raw benefit. Adding Miller lowers this team's projected ERA enough to gain two points and lowers the projected whip enough to gain one. Adding Sessa or Stammen also creates a one-point whip gain, but only one projected ERA point to go with it. So if I were managing this team, I'd put in a solid fab bid on Miller with lower contingent bids on Stammen and Sessa. I also might throw in a lowball bid on Urania just in case. Besides the slight ERA advantage, Miller plays for the best team of the three, which might offer some unexpected vulture wins, and he's in a bullpen where he might even get into the saves mix. I'd also keep in mind that Stammen could end up closing in San Diego if the Padres fall out of their race and decide to trade Kirby Yates. Sessa, I don't think, has any shot at closing, but he could vulture wins because that is another strong team. Now, it's important to realize that none of this applies equally or universally to every fantasy team and every fantasy situation. As they say on the interwebs, your mileage may vary, and it all depends on how your categories are clumped and where you are in them. Yes, the Lima plan can work in season. Some middle relievers definitely have the skills to ring up results that are low enough to usefully move a team in the decimals. But many or even most of the best middle relievers are already spoken for, even in mixed leagues, because of liberal streaming rules where middle relievers have added value to fill slots for streaming starters who are being benched. And the wider the gap between your team and the points you need in the decimals, the more a large innings denominator affects your ability to make that move. You have to keep all of that stuff in mind. But the key thing is to try to make roster decisions with some kind of information in hand, especially the potential effect of any player on the categories. As Todd Zola and others are always reminding us, it's never too late to focus on moving the decimals, especially in the pitching ratio categories, and those middle relievers can play a role. But with that said, don't just believe that adding an Andrew Miller will jump you points in the category, even if the decimals are tight in your league. you got to look at it from all the angles. you got to do the math, and you got to consider the opportunity costs of any potential moves. Give yourself the best chance to make an informed decision. Before I go on, last week's Master Notes contained an error, and I'd like to correct it. I discussed the process by which I decided to early fab Cleveland outfielder Oscar Mercado back on April 28th, and I cited as part of my due diligence process a BaseballHQ.com watchlist article by Alec Dopp. In fact, that article appeared after my choice in May. My initial interest in Mercado was actually sparked by a frequent flyer commentary by our own Alex Becky here on Baseball HQ Radio on April the 12th. My horrendous handwriting in my notes made Alex look like Alec, and as a result, I mixed up these two excellent sources. Since you're wondering, Mercado now has played nine games on my roster. He has a homer, three RBIs, two bags, seven runs scored, and a three fifty on-base percentage. He has really helped, and he seems to have found a consistent spot batting second in Cleveland. So thank you both to Alex Becky and Alec Dopp. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up.
You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 31st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of our show, Doug Dennis, the bullpen's columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Doug is a great guy, a superb analyst, and an excellent guest who's a ton of fun to talk with on the pod or in person, and I sure hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio if you would. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. That really does help us find new listeners and helps new listeners find us. And that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.